What's going on, guys? It's yours truly, Connor, a.k.a. Okay, Fabe. Before we get into this massive edition of Wrestling Retrospective covering The Undertaker Part 1, don't want to forget, you guys, that there's also more stuff over on Patreon, including early access to Wrestling Retrospectives. You guys are listening to this free for the public. Uh, you guys have an actually opportunity to hear Part 2 of this massive, huge one on chronicling the entire career of The Undertaker a month before everybody else. Head over to patreon.com slash okfabe. You get tons of other early access to a bunch of cool bonus stuff, audio posts only from yours truly, a random wrestling podcast post show, but most importantly, access to this series one month before it comes out to the general public. So what are you waiting for? Head over to patreon.com slash okfabe and get in on all the all the awesome goodies. What is going on, everybody? It's yours truly, Connor, a.k.a. Hoke A. Fabe here. Welcome back to one of my favorite shows to do. All my favorite, uh, out of all the things I do here on YouTube, Patreon, all the craziness. One of my favorite series to do right here is the Wrestling Retrospective. We take a deep dive into the career highlights and basically the entire career of some of your favorite wrestlers from past and from the present. And man... We've got a big one here. We've got a, what, probably going to be uh, part one of two of the biggest podcasts we've ever done. We've done a lot of them already. We've done Dolph Ziggler. We've done X-Pac, who is actually going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. We've done The Miz, which has received a lot of praise. But considering WrestleMania is right around the corner, we figured, what the hell? We should chronicle one of, if not the biggest wrestler that is also synonymous with WrestleMania, and we're going to be doing The Undertaker. And you hear me saying we, because it's not just myself. I got me, we with me, my brother from another mother, the man, the myth, the legend, the silent Bob to my Jay. I got with me my friend Jake DeMarco. Jake, how you doing, bud? Snoochie boochies, baby. Yeah, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm super excited for this. This time has come for the dead man to rise once again. We're going to be chronicling, you know, his entire uh, basically journey and career in the WWF before and after. So, you know, there's a lot to consider. And we also have, you know, some current going ons and the Undertaker's, you know, plans for the future to see what happens. So there's a lot to go over today, uh, a real lot. And I have been looking forward to this for a long time now. I know we talked about this when we discussed even starting this series. He was one of the ones we wanted to get to. And who better, you know, or, or is more synonymous with WrestleMania than The Undertaker? So on the road to WrestleMania, who else can be talked about than the dead man? I love how you said snoochie boochies. I think you have to say that every single time we start the episode now. I think that just makes the most sense. But you're right. I mean, Silent Bob to your J. You got to have. Which is, which is ironic because if it was Silent Bob on a podcast, it'd be almost completely pointless. But yes, I, I, I do agree <laughs> with that. But um, this is going to be an interesting one because, you know, when we, me and Jake kind of collaborate on who we want to do in terms of like, you know, going into a deep uh, dive in their career. Uh, we already have some ideas for future episodes already in the books. Uh, a couple people have suggested to us. We'd like to hear from your inputs. Of course, if you guys are listening to this, whether on audio format on the YouTube channel or wherever, always love to hear your suggestions on who you want us to do next. So make sure you hit us up in the comments or on social media. You got Jake at Countdown Ended and myself at OKFabe on the Twitters. Always love to hear your feedback and suggestions. But when we were talking about this, we actually had somebody else already 
planned for for this month. And again, like Jake and I have both said, it's it's WrestleMania season, and it's you know it's the time it's the biggest time for wrestling fans, for WWE fans, the showcase of the Immortals. And we figured you know we wanted to do someone big in in relatively soon, whether it be Shawn Michaels, Triple H, who I'm sure at some point we're probably going to get to those big names. But we were trying to focus on smaller names first. And so we're like, ah, screw it. It's WrestleMania season. Let's go big and go home. Let's do The Undertaker. But then upon upon researching <laughs> The Undertaker, uh, oh, my God. You I figured out the, the infinite tomb that is, <laughs> you know, the war and peace of his career. Man, it's, I mean, you know, I, I said this multiple times. You guys have heard me say this in the last episodes. The Dolph Ziggler debut one was a huge success. Uh, that really got the ball rolling. But again, we didn't expect to go like almost two hours on just Dolph Ziggler. The Miz broke that record going almost three hours talking about him, uh, which you guys haven't checked out. Go check out those episodes. Always a blast doing these with Jake. And uh, the Undertaker one, I think, is going to break us. And so I'm like, we have to split this up into two parts. There's no way we're going to be able to do this in one episode. We have to split this up into two parts. So in this episode today, what we're going to do is we're going to cover basically The Undertaker's debut in pro wrestling, which was not in the WWF, fun fact, which we'll talk about a little bit when we get into depth, all the way up to May of 2000, which is when The Undertaker returns to the WWF as the American badass gimmick. So we're going to be covering everything in that in that span. If you guys want to hear, uh, have your voices be heard, throw us suggestions about favorite matches, moments, memories about everything, you can also hit us up on the Patreon, the social media and let us know what some of your favorite moments matches were for taker and who knows we might read them in the next episode because uh there's a lot of shit to cover in this one i mean i am that there is try and garner some fan feedback from you guys let us know it doesn't even have to be you know just just your favorite moments something you remember you know something that that really stood out to you so it's funny because certainly enough to uh pick yeah, it's funny because I uh, when I was doing, I, I kind of promoted this obviously on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I put some of the old pictures of Undertaker, and someone's like, "Wait, he wore a mask? When did he wear a mask?" And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "Yeah, he broke his eye socket, his orbital socket, which we'll talk about uh, actually in this in this episode." It's like, yeah, there's there again. You know, we talked about like Ziggler and, and Miz and so many others, and, and like we've said multiple times, like you forget certain things have happened, or there's other things that are. Um, that are uh, that you just either forget or completely blank out. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see what we pull up in here. Like the fact that Undertaker is a natural redhead, believe it or not. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of surprising details, uh, you know. And, and that's the thing because, like, as you said, there's so much history. I, I guarantee, you know, even historians can't recount everything that's happened at times. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting little dive in, uh, I should say little, it's going to be like a freaking multi-hour. Like, I'm, I'm curious, this is probably going to be our biggest <laughs> one yet. Between the first and the second part, it's going to be probably one of our biggest podcasts yet. But anyway, let's get right into it. Let's get into the, into the thick of things and let's kick things off with uh, Mark Calloway, mean Mark Calloway. Of course, he is decorated as one of the most highly decorated wrestlers in the world, of uh, in WWE, of course, having multiple championship runs. I'm just looking through the list of all his championships. Again, I'm sure we'll get through all this, the WrestleMania streak, all that. For those of you keeping track, he's a former WWE Tag Team Champion, three-time World Heavyweight Champion, four-time WWF-E 
champion that's also mixed in with the undisputed championship a one-time hardcore champion i can't wait to talk about that that's gonna be a fun time a six-time world tag team champion a royal rumble winner a 12-time slammy award winner and of course has various um awards from the wrestling observer newsletter but of course mean marcus calloway was born in houston texas um he was born on march 24th 1965 so as the recording this on february 21st 2019 he is currently 53 years old and listen, I'm just saying after what I saw at WrestleMania 34, I wish I looked as good as he did I'm now, let alone fucking <laughs> yeah, 54. Absolutely. Never mind then. He went by many different gimmicks, you know, but the first title came to him when he was using the name the Master of Pain. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, that, that was the first career championship he had had was from the USWA Unified World Heavyweight Championship. And he won mm-hmm. that from Jerry the King Lawler. You know, and there's, there's so many things that people just don't realize he had accomplished before heading to WWF. Right. And the big thing was, um, he actually, you know, there was obviously there's some there was a brief run in World Championship Wrestling, but even before that, he did have his debut in you ready for this world class, which is funny because you know, when you think of world class, you think of the Von Erics, you think of Freebirds, you think of all these other big names, and uh, even Steve Austin had a hot ticket run in there, I think with Bruiser Brody, I could be mistaken, but there's a lot of other names that you synonymous uh, that are synonymous with world class, and usually Undertaker's not one of them, and for obvious reasons. But he did have his run in WCCW under the ring name Tech. Texas Red, and he lost his first match against Bruiser Brody. Uh, later on, four years in the promotion, he left and went to Continental Wrestling Association, which later became part of the USWA, which, for those of you keeping track, is when uh, Jerry Jarrett ended up buying like the Tennessee promotion in the Memphis Territory and merging it with World Class into one like kind of, I guess, mega Southern promotion is the best way I can describe it. Um, yeah, you figure going from Texas Red to the Commando to the Punisher to the Master of Pain and then Dice Morgan, of all people. And you figure he, he didn't even consider uh, wrestling at first to be a main focus of his career. He went ahead and dropped out of university to consider sports, but he briefly considered playing professional basketball in Europe. That was his first thought. Can you imagine him playing basketball in Europe instead of wrestling? Now, remember, we like I mean, mentioned height certainly seems plausible. So, I mean, Kevin Nash was also a professional basketball player, too. So it's no real shock. But I'm just saying, like, you know, again, mentioning at the beginning of this whole thing that um, Undertaker Mark at this point in time uh, is also a natural redhead. So can you imagine a freaking seven foot tall redhead playing Lanky European speed, Jerry Curl <laughs> having mini afro <laughs> with the red hair. I mean, he had very like, you know, curly <laughs> standout hair. Man. And, and, you know, like you said, picture him playing basketball. Never mind that. Can you picture wrestling without The Undertaker? That's, yeah, that's yeah, fun. that's geez. All those big moments in Matt WrestleMania would be different. No question about that. Um, Absolutely. Very strange. But as Jake was mentioning, we rolled into this is this was, you know, his debut was in 1984. Uh, Again, four years he left and went to the Continental Wrestling Association, later USWA. Now we're up to 1989. Uh, He was now managed by good old Dirty Dutch Mantel, one of my personal favorite managers and bookers of all time as that master of pain gimmick that Jake had mentioned. Um, now he was a, uh, a character fresh out of a penitentiary after serving five years for killing two men in a fight. So before nails was a thing in WWF, mean Mark Galloway was the master <laughs> of pain, a fucking convicted murderer. You know, what a gimmick. What, what a gimmick, gimmick hasn't been done in wrestling now? I mean, I hear this. I mean, shit. I don't even think Nails was. What was Nails even up for? Did they even actually say what Nails, like, 
why he was like arrested. I know they did like um, what's his name, Nathan Jones, in like '03, where he's like the Colossus of Bugger Road. But what yeah. was? But like, was Nails was never a convicted murderer? No, no, not that I recall. So, geez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and they're saying how you know he spent all of his time in solitary confinement, and you know, it just they made him seem just so monstrous. <sighs> anyway, and, he and realistic too. You know, it was scary because it could be real. I mean, if I had a seven foot ginger coming after me saying he killed two men, I mean, he doesn't have a soul, so it makes sense. <laughs> and really, and it's funny when I was looking at that, you know, when I said the whole thing of like him, you know, uh, being a natural redhead, it makes sense. Redheads don't have a soul. Dead men don't have a soul. It's just a natural fit. <laughs> that it is, you know, and as you said before, you know, this is where he went ahead and challenged Jerry Lawler to an impromptu match. He dominated Lawler until Mantell entered the ring and called him off. Uh, Lawler agreed to a title match, and on April 1st, he won his first professional wrestling championship. He held it for three weeks before Lawler became the first man to pin him, winning it back. And then while performing as the Punisher, he won the WCWA Texas Heavyweight Championship. That was in October of 1989 when Eric Embry forfeited the title. So, you know, another another note right there off the bat. You know, that's two championships so far. So this is before he even got into WCW, which we're about to jump into. So just keep keep in mind that this is the landscape of the territories are pretty much at the very cusp end of like being basically obsolete is the best way I can describe it. So he's That's a great he, way to put it. You know, he, they were being brought up and consumed and, and the smaller brackets were being turned into what we now know as WCW and WWF. Right. So you have all these other like, and actually it's interesting going back and like looking at all these different territories, you know, when you watch the trend and pattern, they almost, they almost all did the exact same thing where like you had a bunch of smaller territories that were doing okay, start to slowly die out. And any of the larger ones that would maybe pose a threat to Vince ended up kind of like buddying together. Hence, you have like the Super Clash, USWA is a prime example where they're kind of all just bleeding into each other to compete with either Vince or in this case, the Crockett's as we're about to talk about, because they, they were the two biggest fish in the, you know, biggest fishes in the pond at the moment. So He's kind of bouncing around between all of them until, in 1989, Callaway joins World Championship Wrestling as a villain and adopted the ring name Mean Mark Callis, uh, which, of course, is a name devised for him by none other than another Hall of Famer, Terry Funk. Well, I gotta tell you, Mean Mark, you're just gonna have to... I love how he calls himself Callus too, like the callus on your hands. I'm guessing that's yeah. where he got the name from. Absolutely, you know, and... He was a very morbid character wearing all black to the ring. And, you know, he was described by JR as having a fondness for pet snakes, like <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne music. So, you know, he had like a, a satanic cult kind of uh, feel to him. And he went and immediately was drafted into the Skyscrapers tag team. And he, re he ended up replacing an injured Sid Vicious at that time and made his debut on January 3rd, 1990. That was in a match televised uh, against Agent Steele and Randy Harris. So now it's interesting. I'm trying to find a picture of him mean Mark because it, it's funny how it is, how how when you look at the picture, I'm like trying to pull up an image of how he looked then it's not too far off from like what will eventually be the Undertaker in the very, very early stage because he basically had like the black trunks, the the black uh, knee pads. He still had like the red hair, but it was starting to slowly fade out. And man, he was in a great shape at that point. Um, but Terrific shape. And he, and he had like the stone cold Steve Austin like um, leather um, vest. So you can sort of not that WCW had any sort of remote plans to make him into the Undertaker. But just looking if you go back and look at the photos like I'm looking at right now, 
you can sort of see that like it's the early stages of of what you know morphing into what he'll eventually become um yeah, and man it's just weird you to know, see him with redhead. it also had a, a a tinge of the biker gimmick you know the american badass as well yes. because that was large part his real persona who he really was you know the biker wasn't just a gimmick that was a part of him that's why he wanted to portray that on tv so and I do remember that, and I, I might be jumping a little ahead here. I know that, um, you know, when we when we mentioned he's going to be drafted into uh, the skyscrapers, he becomes part of a tag team with, um, I believe, Pauly Dangerously joins him, or is that a little later on? I believe that's a little bit later on. Okay, which is interesting because it, it, I don't, you know, I, I love Paul Heyman. It's no secret I worship the ground he walks on. It's very interesting to see that they've also had very parallel paths in some cases. But yes, he went on to, um, as Jake mentioned earlier, be part of Skyscrapers, uh, Skyscrapers tag team um, and eventually went on to gain some notoriety at Clash of Champions 10 when they beat down the Road Warriors. Now, you know, the Road Warriors back then really didn't have a whole lot of um, uh, bigger guys that they ended up fighting up against. But looking at the skyscrapers against, I mean, this would be a handful of teams, especially back then. We're talking um, Clash of Champions 10, which was, I believe, 1990, 1990? I hope I'm getting that right. Yeah, it was 1990. Yep. Um, which really, there wasn't yeah, that many, absolutely. there really wasn't that many, um, you know, big teams that could go up against the Road Warriors. You maybe had the Steiners. You maybe had, um, you know, Demolition over in WWF. But there weren't that many could go toe-to-toe with the Road Warriors. To have those guys kind of, uh, you know, go toe-to-toe is a very interesting little dynamic. And, uh, by the way, the manager of the Skyscrapers at that time, <laughs> I can't believe this. You know, if I, <laughs> I'm laughing because of the amount of jokes that people make. What's the one joke that usually people syn- syn- make synonymous with SmackDown? Who's a certain general manager that everybody likes to make fun of when, with SmackDown GMs? What, Teddy Long? <laughs> and what's the joke that we always make? He either makes tag team matches or matches with The Undertaker, right? Uh, yeah, The Undertaker and, and tag matches play. And so at the very first... Holla, holla, holla. And so at the, <laughs> and so at the first major event, Teddy Long is managing a tag team with The Undertaker. Yeah, how does... You know, that, that's, that's poetic right there. It's divine intervention at its finest. It really is just a form of, you know, cosmic justice. Amazing how, you know, so many, so many figures throughout, you know, the time they, they impacted the Undertaker's career and then resurfaced later on, you know, two, three decades down the road. It's, it's incredible. Him and Jerry Lawler working together, JR, as you said, you know, Theodore Long, just, just so many individuals that, that would come up later on and still prove to be a big part of his, you know, his not just career, but his popularity as well. I'm gonna have to go back, and I swear to God, if he says "holla holla" during the match, I'm gonna fucking piss my pants. I'm I'm just saying, I'm gonna have to go back and watch that and see if that happens. Because if that's not, if that's not time traveling, I don't know what it is. But anyway, um, we see them beat down the Road Warriors after the match at Clash of Champions 10. However, Mark as partner Dan Spivey left WCW days before the Chicago Street Fight against the Road Warriors at Wrestle War. Callus and a replacement masked skyscraper were defeated in that match. Of course, the team broke up not too long afterwards. So Mark wasn't really much of a tag team specialist uh, very long, but then he eventually did, as I mentioned, a little jump to Hill Head earlier, took the guidance of one Paul E. Dangerously, a.k.a. Paul Heyman, and defeated Johnny Ace 
at Capital uh, Combat and defeated Brian Pillman at Clash of Champions 11 in singles competition. So now we're starting to see him start getting pushed up through the mid-card as he's now uh, going up against Lex Luger in 1990 in July to challenge for the NWA U.S. Championship at the Great American Bash, but didn't unfortunately win that one. But according yeah, to any- him a little bit short, just yep. a little short. Now, at this point in time, and it's actually it's interesting because according to uh, Bruce Pritchard on his podcast, he said feelers had already been sent out to the WWF that month for Callaway by Paul Heyman, which is interesting because I, I think Heyman was still yeah Heyman was still um, was still working I think for WW or for WCW at that point in time. I could be wrong, but anyway, Callaway wrestled the match with a dislocated hip, knowing that he'd be watched by Vince McMahon, and McMahon initially did not express any interest. But Pritchard pushed uh, for him to speak with Callaway when WCW traveled to New Jersey for a house show later on in the summer. The meeting between the two very well. Very, bleh, can't talk. The meeting between the two went very well, and he gave his notice to WCW on August 27th. And his final match was on September 7th at Worldwide when he. He defeated Dave Johnson. Now that was 1990. So this is fall of 1990, and he's giving his notice uh, to WCW. But I think there's one other part I forgot too. Which yeah, yep. well, n- not just that, but I mean, really quick. This is this is what defines the Undertaker, you know, and and some of his key traits. When you really think about him, you always, you know, not to sound like Michael Cole and vintage, but old school, you know, not just the the top rope maneuver, but that really is the Undertaker's mentality with the business. He has a very old school mentality towards things. And he went out there knowing he was injured and pushed his body to the limit because it was a chance for him to essentially, not to sound cliche, but grab the brass ring. You know, this was an opportunity for him to go and, you know, advance in his career and basically get a chance to be in WWF. This is something that he wanted from the get-go, something he wanted to achieve, and right. he wasn't going to let any injury or, you know, bodily harm stop him. And that's one of the things that followed him throughout the years. He would put his body on the line continuously and continually, at, you know, time and time again for the sake of the business. And it just, it, it's, it's, it's impressive, unprecedented, and currently unheard of in today's landscape. No, especially in today's landscape, um, you know, with so them- heavy on safety first. Yeah, exactly. And we've talked about this numerous times on like out of nowhere and other shows we've done before, you know, and and we'll I'm, I guarantee we'll talk about this when we talk about like other superstars who have had like longevity in their careers. It is very interesting to see like the 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 importance of the safety, which you know I'm not knocking WWF or WWE for for not you know for taking initiative to be like cautious and like no more like chair shots or concussion protocol. Like it's very, but you know in a business that was already a tough person mindset, and this guy's going above and beyond. And there's going to be I'm sure plenty of stories as I mentioned before wrestled with a broken orbital socket. Um, yeah, I mean you look at WrestleMania 30 and immediately uh, you know early on in the match with Brock Lesnar the night that the streak was broken he was severely concussed in the ring severely and had it been anyone else i feel that that match would have been called off yeah if, if, if i truly yeah. believe that to this day no i completely agree with you um which you again you looked at him in, in his eyes the lights were out and no one was home but he he told the ref continually that he was not leaving that ring. So. Well, hell, when we get to WrestleMania 27, you know, next episode, uh, he hit Triple H with a chair shot to the head, or I think or maybe he received it, and uh, that was a big no-no back then, and it was, like, worthy of a fine, which I'm sure Taker paid no problem. Yeah, they both were fined for that match for the, you know, gratuitous chair shots, and they didn't care because they had a story they wanted to tell, and that's all there was to it. 
Right. But we'll get more to that once we get in there. But again, it's just you when you hear these stories now of like him going above and beyond, it's not only just him going above and beyond in like today's standards, but back then, especially with all the like, it's just it's yeah. nuts. It's nuts to hear. People this. were strong back then and he was at a whole nother level. And it's, it's just amazing how he held on to his morals, not just to be a company man, but, you know, he, he, he let nothing stop him. Ever. And that and that will and that won't be the last time we hear that either. I'm, I guarantee that. There's I know there's a couple of stories in here, but before uh, during his time in WCW, I want to mention this as well. Callaway also briefly did wrestle in New Japan. Fun fact, which kind of blew me away. But then again, when he's in WCW in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, not really too much of a surprise. He wrestled as Punisher Dice Morgan. Good God, how many names does this guy have? <laughs> so many gimmicks. After WCW, after he left, he briefly returned to USWA to participate in a tournament to determine the new heavyweight champion. Uh, but he then he defeated Bill Dundee in the first round, but lost to once again Jerry Lawler. Man, I'm surprised Jerry Lawler doesn't brag about these more often. But maybe I guess maybe they just don't want to. I guess because that. it's under you know because they do bring up losses in other companies, but it was a different name, you know, a different gimmick. And it was so a really different time. Issue was. Yeah, yeah, true. But after all that, after all the dust had settled in October of 1990, Mark Calloway officially signed with the World Wrestling Federation. And now we're almost off to the races. Now, we're a little almost. in the, almost <laughs> we're in this weird bit in between time. So in October of 1990, he signs and he won't officially debut on TV until Survivor Series 1990, which we're going to get to in a bit. There was some in between time where he wasn't quite called The Undertaker. He was referred to as something else, which I think Jake knows. Yeah, he was referred to as Kane the Undertaker, and he debuted at a taping of Superstars November 19th, 1990. So the original Dead Man, you know, character was depicted as a Western mortician. He had the, you know, the dark trench coat, the gray striped tie, uh, you know, the black Stetson hat with the gray gloves and the boot spats on. And he was basically portrayed that he was impervious to pain, something accomplished by Callaway not selling any of his opponent's attacks he would get hit with a whole plethora of moves and finishers and was able to rise up and kick out of things that people had not done before and it's so interesting really helped build him you know as, right. as a you know <laughs> a monster per se now it's interesting when you go back and i actually also watched um one of my favorite series on the network is the monday night wars and yeah, fantastic um, done very well Check done it out if you haven't seen it yeah, and and what, trust me, we'll be plugging plugging a lot of network stuff. And if they're listening, we love a sponsorship. But um, one of the ones is the um, uh, when they do Sting and Taker because Sting never left WCW, Taker never left WWF during the course of the Monday Night Wars, and they kind of went into the development of the Undertaker character. And uh, it's interesting that you meant you know when when researching this about the idea of him being like a mortician that was like undead or impervious to pain. And I remember if you go back and watch certain certain um, promos and vignettes and I'm trying to remember which one I think it was a Wrestlemania one but he's like got tape measures and he's like measuring the seams of like someone's suit yes yes and, and I can't remember what that was and but it was a fitting for the coffin as yes, well so yeah and aware for their final resting and it was very creepy as a kid to watch this like he's he's measuring you know I, I don't know if it was Jake the snake at that time or I know it's in the notes coming up. We'll double check it, but you know he was measuring the suit for to, to bury this person, and I was just awestruck at you know the things we were seeing on TV at that point. I'm trying to remember. I want to say it was Bob Euchre from WrestleMania. It, but, I think that might be. You but might be right. I'm trying to remember what. It, I gotta find an image of this. This isn't. This is gonna bug me. Um, but I know there was at least one. And in fact, you know, uh, another big thing of it was. 
you know, back in that time frame, we're talking again, 1990, you have a lot of these boisterous, over-the-top, loud characters. I think Jake the Snake would probably be the only exception to this. You know, you look back at the roster back then, you have like Hulk Hogan, you have Ultimate Warrior, you have Rick Rude, you have a lot of these um, Macho Man, you have a lot of these uh, Roddy Piper, over-the-top personas and he was almost the complete antithesis of that like you said that like watching it as a kid was scary and i'm not you know i'm not disagreeing with that and what i'm definitely yeah, I mean, it was emphasizing a big that. reach and distance from you know vitamins and prayers you know <laughs> that, that was the <laughs> exact opposite it was just strange to see like when he showed up obviously and, and honestly you know i'm sure people have seen it to death but it's one of my favorite reactions is when he comes out the very first time um the crowd audibly gasps because of how menacing and and just sinister he looks right and as you said comparatively speaking you have everybody in wrestling trunks they're they're tan they're shaved you know they don't have any body hair they're huge muscular physique but they, they they look like you know comic book heroes per se and then you have this ominous evil menacing slow walking dead man come out and and the way the makeup and everything he did look like a zombie you know and he, he just he he didn't fit in but yet he was instantly welcomed Yes, and it, but it, I just love the actual like seeing him coming out. Like you just said, everything was accurate, and like look, going back and looking at all the the kids' reactions are my favorite. Just seeing like and and also hearing, um, I think it was Pipe, Piper was on commentary when he debuted in Sur Survivor Series. He just goes, "Holy, look at the size of that ham hock!" It's one of my. <laughs> it's just it's genuinely one of my favorites coming in. Just absolutely, uh, he was a mystery opponent too. He was a mystery partner for. Um, for Ted DiBiase's team, the million dollar team. Yes. And you figure three days before this, he's, you know, wrestling as Kane, the undertaker. And then, you know, that's on superstars of wrestling. Now we head into survivor series, as you had said, and lo and behold, he is, you know, Ted DiBiase's surprise, you know, and it's just what a surprise it was. And, and right a minute into the match, the undertaker immediately eliminates Coco beware with his finisher, the, the tombstone pile driver. And, you know, you, you've seen pile drivers up to this point, but the way the tombstone was, it looked devastating. The, the, yep. the, you know, he had a bit of more of a leap to it then at that point. So he was flipping right. his opponent upside down, putting his head between their legs and basically making them kiss their ass goodbye. <laughs> Sounds hot when you say it, Jake. But um, yeah, <laughs> but, um, you know, especially again, and, and it, it again goes back to the whole idea of how different he was. You know, I said with all the characters and being like flamboyant and over the top and like colorful and loud, a lot of finishers back then were also very simplistic and not that. Hey everyone, I just want to remind you to make sure you check out the awesome people over at Anchor.fm. Of course, it is a great place for you to host your own podcast. And guess what? One of the cool parts is that it's totally free. Yeah, that's right, free. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your computer or even your phone. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many others. Trust me, it's so easy. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place if you guys want to get in on it make sure you download the free anchor app or just simply go to anchor.fm to get started you know not to take anything away from the tombstone pile driver but again name tombstone pile driver fits the fits the whole persona the devastating power of just dropping someone on their fucking head yeah is, driving them down with such force into the and, mat and then crossing their arms 
you know, to as if it was their final resting position. It's just so good. Holding them down to pin them. It was it was a unique pin. Everything about it was just that unique. It was, and and it. it ah. I just love the the original like the the original idea, the concept, the look, the gray tie, like you just mentioned with everything. Him coming out in Survivor Series with, and actually, again, another fun fact. I'm sure everybody freaking already knows this was not with Paul Bear originally. He was with Brother Love, which I thought was a very yes. weird uh, mix. Although when when he explained it on the Bruce Pritchard podcast, he said that the reason that he wanted to be uh, the manager was because he figured that it was, um, you know, the, the the darkness to his light. Like brother, love was all about love and life, and and you know, basically, as everybody pretty much can put two and two together, a parody of the televangelist on TV. Yes, and he and wanted to have a character that was right, character. right, and he wanted to have something that was a, almost a complete antithesis to that. So, of course, Taker does very well in the match, even though technically he did get counted out, but he did eliminate both Coco Beware and Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Coco Beware, he pretty much eliminated in a minute. Uh, but overall, still, DiBiase's team won the match with DiBiase being the sole survivor. So even though he was technically eliminated in his debut, still obviously a huge monumental showing. Uh, during the match, he was referred to as just The Undertaker, so not Kane. So the whole Kane, The Undertaker was just during a uh, a taping of like the superstars where he was you know under in a couple of dark matches I believe so he'd never be referred to as Kane the Undertaker again it was just the Undertaker. Um, well, we would hear the name Kane again. Yes. You know, spoiler alert. Later, about seven years, seven years or so later, that name would. <laughs> Damn it, Jake! Spoiler <laughs> alert. To rise once more, it will be said and done. Uh, but here, actually, at the same time, the Undertaker switches managers. And yeah, it doesn't know, take long. To Paul Bear. No, it was right after. And here you have a ghostly character, um, you know, just just someone that stood out as much as the Undertaker did. And, you know, they, they right off the bat, they they kind of made him seem very unique. You know, you yes. see this very large man uh carrying an urn which we we later come to find out he used to revive the undertaker's strength whenever the undertaker fell you know victim to his opponents and it, that was essentially the source of the undertaker's power so now there was this this control aspect to the managerial relationship that we hadn't seen before either he essentially controlled frankenstein's monster Paul Bearer was such an interesting character because, number one, like you, you hit the nail on the head, like a ghostly character just fit well. And, you know, I understand uh, the, the thought process of having Brother Love be uh, Taker's uh, manager from like the, you know, looking back on it. But obviously it would be so different now with 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 without Paul Bearer, the name is absolutely hilarious. And the other thing that I also really liked about it is that, you know, as, as you know, when people try to do the impersonation, oh, my Undertaker, it sounds almost comical. But when you see Paul Bear, who was a legitimate licensed mortician, which is yes. very funny, um, it, it just so many aspects Played of it just click. Alvin Moody, by the way. But, we, you know, Moody put his all into this character. Yes. Absolutely his all. And, and, his portrayal will will never be topped. You know, he one of the best managers of all time. One of, but it's, I mean, it, like you said, it, it was just the perfect combination entirely. And especially at the time, which you made great note of, there there were so many wrestlers that had this huge star power, but they were so atypical. They were all cut from the same mold. 
it, it was almost hard from a, a casual standpoint to tell the difference between a few of them. You know, the right. Undertaker's was was night and day different, and that was the best thing about him. Mm-hmm. You, you know, even just the theme music alone, you know, other themes you could basically mix together and, and not really know that you were listening to something different. But the Undertaker, you know, the orchestral funeral parlor music that played just brought chills to, to the arena. Uh, you know, it made everything feel eerie and, and came to a standstill when you heard, you know, or when, I should say when you saw someone like the ultimate warrior and Hulk Hogan, they, they had this very similar looks, same off, you know, moveset and uh, right. offensive maneuvers, kind of the same Hulk up maneuver as well. You know, they would have a point where they get beat down and then they had to Hulk up from the audience's cheers and, you know, the warrior, they were great, but, they it all felt similar and that's why the undertaker i feel also took off the way he did and vince you know it had had a, a certain idea in mind and, and stuck to it and he really went all in with this undertaker character by having him you know basically put the the opponents that he defeated coming up next into body bags and carrying them to the back i forgot about that shit when i was looking this up i forgot about that yeah you know how how frightening does it get? Not only do you do you see him drive this person's head into the mat with a move called the Tombstone Pile Driver, when when previously look at the finishers we got leg drops and you know DDTs and you know it was very body splashes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I don't want to say mundane and simple, but but it wasn't anything excessive. The Tombstone Pile Driver looked like it it caused your brain to explode <laughs> there was such a force especially when he would do the leaping pile driver as well you know he got yeah. a real you know some height into it right you, you thought the person wasn't going to be able to get back up then your your fears were confirmed because he put them in a body bag and carried them to the back <laughs> i mean you talk about like nail in the coffin you know i mean it, it, it's the other there were so many things and i, and I don't want to spend too much on this but again and as much as we shit on Vince now for sometimes creative or decisions and whatnot, you have to appreciate the genius of Vince when it does break through. And this is a clear, I think there's no questions asked. This was the, the, the Undertaker is the greatest creation Vince has ever had. No, in my opinion, no, no question whatsoever. Yeah, um, no argument. There. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm biased because Taker's my favorite wrestler of all time. But I think if you really look back at the original creations that Vince McMahon has made, Taker stands up above the rest. And another two things that really make him stand out at this time and frame, and I go back, I know I'm jumping a little ahead here, but I recently reviewed the 1992 Royal Rumble, I'm now doing retro pay-per-views on the channel. And so looking back, again, a couple of years ahead, but still roughly the same time frame, there's two big things that also stood out to me about Taker. Number one, a lot of wrestlers were fast and colorful and quick and try to be very offense, like very fast in the ring. Not like cruiserweight speed, but like very like, you know, quick pace. Animated Take- and lively. Yes. yes. Taker was not. He walked to the ring slow. He didn't yeah, everything really. Everything in- was methodical. Everything was was orchestrated in such a way that it was it was planned. It felt like everything was going according to plan with him. Like he knew when you were going to strike, when you were going to hit, and he had a counter for everything. And he allowed you to use your own momentum against yourself. Right. And he like did uh he did like the the choke hold where he would like just grab someone's neck and just hold on to it for a while. Like it wasn't a choke slam. It was just like holding on to like holding onto their neck, which God knows he's done enough of that. The other part of it is, you know, you talk about the Paul Bear, the manager. Up until later on, which we'll get to, um, no one else was managed by him. 
You know, you had yeah. Heaton, you had Hart, you had, uh, back in the day, classy Freddie Blassie. You had a lot of managers that would uh, jump around to other superstars. They have like a family or a stable or a group or whatever. And Paul Bearer, yes. up until later on, obviously, in the Attitude Era or pre-Attitude Era, Paul Bearer didn't manage anyone else except for The Undertaker. So just another level of being he was unique. guy. <laughs> right. And it was just another Lone level of being unique. Stuck to him. Right. Absolutely. So it was all part of something that you hadn't seen before, you know, sticking with one manager with only one, you know, protege, uh, especially the Undertaker being under the tutelage, it felt like, of Paul Bearer. Paul Bearer was developing the Undertaker as time went on, making him more and more evil, I would say. You know, we, we they brought him out as a mortician, but he morphed more so as time progressed into the dead man. Yeah. So throughout the end of 1990, The Undertaker continues to, you know, put his victims into body bags on superstars of wrestling and wrestle challenge tapings. Then he goes into the 1991 Royal Rumble. Uh, that was won by Hulk Hogan, obviously. But, you know, The Undertaker still looked impressive and he continues picking up victories and squash matches along the way, which leads up to his first feud in the WWF with the Superfly, Jimmy Snooker. Super, super, superfly. <laughs> And thus begins the streak. Ah, one of one of the biggest proponents of WrestleMania itself, which still holds strong today, even though the streak has ended. Uh, the Undertaker makes his WrestleMania debut, yes, twice at WrestleMania Seven. So that's March twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, and he quickly defeated Jimmy Superfly Snooker, which really, you know, hadn't been done on a grand stage like that before. Now, obviously, and this is the other thing, too. By the way, the match was only four minutes. It was four minutes and 20 seconds. Hey, oh. We've seen um, squash matches on, on you know, the show of shows before. I mean, you can look at the Ultimate Warrior, you know, winning the IC title, things like that. But it was the way it was done and how you thought that Superfly had this, this great chance. He didn't quite feel like the underdog coming into this. And he was basically picked apart so quickly that it was shocking. Now, the other part of this is that... You know, obviously there's no and, – and they've made mention of this before on like network specials and interviews. You know, the whole idea of The Undertaker's streak being part of like WrestleMania and like being this thing really didn't come about until – and we'll talk about this in part two. Around I think like WrestleMania 18 um, is when they really started kind of like pick up on the fact of, oh, shit. Taker's never lost at WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah, he's never lost at WrestleMania. And even Triple H has admitted this in previous mm. – in fact, there's a – there's a special they did, I think, a year or two ago where it was like the 25th anniversary of The Undertaker. And uh, he mentions, he's like, you know, half the time when like these things happen where like, you know, every match is this or like the stats of like things like, oh, this hat, like, the, you know, they don't really, they're not aware of it until they actually get like presented. And then it's like, you know, someone's like, hey, by the way, you know, do you realize that you and Triple H are the only people who've ever like been in a hell of a cell match? Like some, some weird like shit like that. Um, and so he was mentioning like the streak being this huge thing really didn't take like, you know, grassroots. It was kind of mentioned in WrestleMania 18, but obviously it becomes a lot more prevalent once we get to uh, WrestleMania 25, which we'll get to in the second part. But again, no big plans for Taker, but like, we're going to make him undefeated at WrestleMania. It just, it naturally progressed this way. Um, but what I really forgot about was, uh, which is right after this, is Taker's feud with the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, the, uh, the feud here really defines the early days of The Undertaker. Uh, he ends up attacking Ultimate Warrior and locked him in an airtight casket on the set of Paul Bear's funeral parlor, <laughs> which is an interview segment that they would have backstage. Attempted murder, gotta love and it. here, I mean, 
<laughs> no one could actually get into the casket. I remember they had to eventually go and get a crowbar to break them out. And didn't they have to give Warrior CPR afterwards? Yes. I believe? Yeah. yeah. Which, okay. which, so. <laughs> which, I'm, like, again, Taker's a former, he was portrayed as a former uh, mass murderer. Flash forward, he's now a dead man killing people in a casket. Um, the kids love it. The kids love it. <laughs> the kids just can't get enough. Buy the <laughs> merchandising. Can you imagine if they had a funeral parlor? Um, Playset, and you can warrior in a casket <laughs> with with medic who gives it's got, you know it's got a warrior figure that has CPR. a it's got a warrior figure that has a frozen face like he's scared. Say, to death. He's a little blue in the face. <laughs> <laughs> he's not breathing. Is that blue face paint? Nope, that's how it comes, mommy. <laughs> Let's see. Part of the playset, mom. It's Just... part of the playset. <laughs> oh shit! Anyway. So following this, he would later lose, surprisingly enough, to the Ultimate Warrior in the first ever body bag challenge in WWF history. So a bit huh. of a shocking set of defeat there. Well, yeah, something the, I didn't recall either. Tinkers had a bad luck sometimes. I think we have to look back when we get through these. I don't think Tinkers ever won a Buried Alive match, has he? No, I don't believe so either. And he he doesn't have the, the most fleshed out win streak despite WrestleMania either. Right. He did lose a lot which a lot of people seem to forget um because his, his, when he does win it's on such a grand stage or or such a you know momentous occasion that that outweighs any of the losses and that's one of the issues we have today you know with 50 50 booking and uh, when push comes to shove you can have a wrestler lose nine times out of ten but it's that tenth time where it's on you know a championship match or something that's that's you know, feud ending or, or, you know, requires that, you know, it's, it's a necessity for that victory to happen and they don't pull the trigger. That's when wins and losses matter. Right. And that, and, you know, you know, this whole body bag thing, we'll get to other matches that mention that too, but Jake hit the nail on the, the coffin, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, but it's true. Like takers, um, takers career is not really known for major victories. No, it's, but Vince it's, was careful about protecting him as well. Vince was very, very strong in his mindset of, I, I can have my creation lose, but when it requires him to win, he's going to get the job done. Right, and that's the big thing is that eventually, and we'll roll more into this later on, uh, you know, it is just surprising like when you think back, and again, the whole idea of like going back and digging into these people's careers, like you know, much like X-Pac. X-Pac was really not known for any sort of major victories or milestones, but when you look through his career, it's like, oh shit, yeah, that was really good. Oh, that was really great. And especially in this earlier time in, in Taker's career, which we're going to get to, although he does get a pretty massive fucking victory in a little bit, you know, bigger scale, it's known for his stability to um, deliver in the ring and his character to be one of like the best portrayed characters in wrestling history. Absolutely. So at that point we move on from, uh, he loses the body bag challenge to warrior. And now we're going to go through a little bit of 1991. We're going to, so we're at this point, we're at King of the ring, 1991, where taker defeats animal in a qualifying match before losing and fighting Sid vicious. Again, another crossroads for WCW hide your scissors to a just uh, double disqualification in the semifinals, which saw both men eliminated from King of the ring tournament. So again, for those of you who don't know, usually in the tournament, sometimes you'll see or hear this. Uh, when we go through these. Sometimes when you see like, like a double DQ or a double count out, it means that the last person gets a buy. So in this case, neither man technically lost. 
but neither technically won either. But now, yeah, so they were both eliminated, and that's when Bret Hart went on to beat IRS that year to win the King of the Ring. So. Can you can you repeat that one more time? I just want to kind yeah. of process that Bret right there. Hitman Hart beat Irwin R. Scheister to win the King of the Ring that year, 1991. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't get taxed with the win. But anyway, um, right. now comes, at this point in time, no questions asked, the biggest win of Taker's career um, at this point in time. Now, mind you, he's only been in the WWF for a year now. We're, flash, we're fast forwarding ahead to... Uh, Survivor Series in 1991. So Taker has been with the yeah. company for one full year and comes up to his biggest win thus far. He basically got passed right over the mid card and, you know, got his first taste of gold that night by defeating Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series. Just one year, like you said, one solitary year after debuting in the company. And now, Ric Flair helped him in this victory by sliding a steel chair into the ring while the ref was distracted. And Undertaker yeah, that. performs the Tombstone pile driver onto the steel chair. So Hogan's head hits it hard and gets the three count. And the Undertaker becomes the youngest WWF champion in history at that point in time. And that stat would remain until Yokozuna broke his record two years later. So it's interesting that a lot of shit happens at once. So at this point, 1991, so we're past WrestleMania 6. No, we're not yet. I'm trying to remember my time frame here. WrestleMania. Uh, yeah, that was that was yeah. We were at seven for his yes. uh, yep, first yep, yep. match. So, so now we're past. Now we're heading into WrestleMania. We're he yeah, we're heading into WrestleMania. Yes, yes, you're correct. I'm trying to think of my timeline here. So you have to keep in mind that Hulk Hogan did not lose to many people at this point in time. You know, he he put no, over no, he put over Warriors. It was just not something that happened often. Now, granted, it wasn't a clean win, and if you actually go back, I, I remember this very vividly, if you go back and watch the moment where Flair slides the chair in, uh, Hogan's head comes nowhere fucking close to that chair. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it just, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's it a, looks... It looks, you know, convincing to a certain point, but right. And the problem was is that it was just bad camera angle. Like they got way too, you know what I mean? Like they got too close into it. But yeah. anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, but Hogan, I don't think would have taken that anyway. <laughs> no, and it, it, it's a testament, I think, to Undertaker because I think he was smart to kind of protect the the star of the, you know what I mean? Like he, it, it might have been a testament to him, like making sure that oh, I'm not gonna fuck up. I'm not going to fuck up on yes. Hogan at this point in time, you know what I mean? Um, it was it was great booking at this point in time, too, because it wasn't a straight disqualification. And here we see The Undertaker. He gets to become the champion, so he gets elevated. Hulk Hogan goes ahead and, you know, is protected because he lost, but it wasn't a clean loss. Ric Flair also gets, you know, to, to feud with Hogan, and, and although that doesn't last long, but... <laughs> So from here, we go ahead and uh, we see a rematch ordered for this Tuesday in Texas just six days later, and he lost the title back to Hogan. You know, it, it was only six days later, so we saw that right after the fact. But, however, due to the controversial ends to the two title matches between The Undertaker and Hogan, the title was vacated by WWF President Jack Tooney, and the title was awarded to none other than Ric Flair as the winner of the 1992 Royal Rumble match. And that was one of the first times we saw, I, that was the first time, right, where we saw the title uh, yes. to the victor of the Royal Rumble. Yep, and again, as I mentioned before, doing retro pay-per-view reviews. If you guys want to hear my entire review of the 1992 Royal Rumble pay-per-view, go check it out. It's over on the YouTube channel. But a couple things I want to kind of point out about the whole uh, controversial title switches between the two, and this is something else that's also bigger. Yeah, There were two pay-per-views in less than a week. Yeah, which a lot of people weren't happy with at that point in time. 
so you had Survivor Series, which, which for the record, everybody who's keeping track at home, Survivor Series was, I believe, originally created as a direct competition for a um, a Jim Crockett promotion. I think it was to counter Starcade, or not Starcade. Um, yeah, Starcade. I'm sorry. Originally, yeah, Star. It was, yeah, I believe it was just to go in adjacent to Starcade. Yeah. Yep. And so then on top of that, and and it's just crazy to me to kind of think about this. So they had Survivor Series on Sunday, and then. Or they had Survivor Series, and then six days later on the Tuesday in Texas is a is another pay per view. So in six days you get two paper. Like, it's just fucking crazy to me. Like if it was a brand split thing, okay, fine. One's Raw, yeah, one's SmackDown. No, we, we got that, and a lot of people were not happy that you know the title switched hands essentially. The and then it was vacated. You know, so they rented the the pay per view for nothing. They felt like there was a bit of a controversy at that point in time and pay-per-view was still in its infancy. You know, it was only a few years developed at that, at that time. So, right. But as you said before, the title was held up and for the first time ever in WWE history, the championship was put on the line during the Royal rumble match flair wins it. And so now we're rolling into WrestleMania eight. But before that, in February, we see undertaker, uh, to Undertaker's ally, Jake the Snake Roberts. So at this point in time, he's ally aligning himself with Jake the Snake Roberts, and they're both going after uh, Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth, which I think was spurned off by Jake. Was that with Jake giving um, them the Cobra during the wedding, like the wedding gifts? Yes, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. I'd lo- <laughs> I love that shit. That was so good. They just oh, She just opens up the gift, a fucking giant Cobra coming out, and just, ah, good stuff. But anyway... Um, at this point in time, it's very interesting that we see uh, Taker for the first time ever turning babyface as we see there's a – and actually, I loved how this worked out. Essentially, we see Macho Man and Elizabeth coming into – coming to the back. Now, at this point in time, there's no monitors. There's no Titantron. There's no way they could see behind there, and they actually have two cameras going at once. They have one on Elizabeth and Savage go uh, looking at them coming up the, up the uh, entryway, and right behind the curtain, right before they go into – I guess before Gorilla was even you know, around at that point in time – is Jake Roberts with a – with a steel chair ready to like to smack he's macho ready man. to strike the he's snake re- is ready to strike he's ready to hit macho man but but interestingly what happens is elizabeth goes in front of macho man so if she went through the curtain she would have been the first one hit and as jake goes to wind up uh miss elizabeth comes in and we see him about to hit her regardless and taker grabs and stops the chair for from from hitting her Macho Man gets her and gets the hell out of Dodge, and we now see uh, him turning babyface about a week or so later towards the end of February. We see Roberts confront him on the funeral parlor over the incident, and I remember there was uh, it was something really kind of kooky because, again, Paul Bearer did most of the talking. I mean, Taker did a couple like, rest in peace, but Bearer did most of the promos and stuff, and I just, I don't know, it wasn't supposed to be funny, but I remember Jake getting up in his face, like kind of like figuring out, like, you know, hey, what the hell, man? I was going to take them out. Why would you do that? And Jake goes, whose side are you on anyway? And he just goes, not yours. And I just couldn't. <laughs> it was just such a great reply. It was. It was. I mean, they sold it well. They made it serious. But for some reason, just the fact that Taker said, like, not yours. I feel like it's going to be a sound bite and a gift soon. I, I, I swear. But uh, good stuff. Good stuff. But um, so. You know, Jake the Snake ends up attacking both Paul Bearer and The Undertaker, only for Undertaker to stand his ground, and he gets Roberts to run away. Mm-hmm. And this leads into WrestleMania. So here we are, WrestleMania 8. And uh, April 5th, 1992, they're at the Hoosier Dome in Indiana. Hoosier Dome. Uh, <laughs> the Undertaker, as you know with the streak, no spoiler alert there, defeats Jake the Snake Roberts. Now, uh, a- quite, the, quite the match here, you know, another one that that's... Uh, quite revered by fans 
Now, there's another interesting story behind that that Jake also tells because um, at this point, Jake actually said that he was holding up him going to the ring. He held Vince up because what happened was Jake Roberts wanted to stop wrestling and he wanted to be a producer, an agent. And at this point, Pat Patterson had stepped down because of the, um, we'll just say, controversial surroundings of him and others. I think we all know what I'm referring to. And, uh, yeah, Jake, Jake, um, Jake wanted to take the position and he was like, he was promised it by, by either Vince or someone else. And so when he came time, he said, you know, out of respect for Pat, we're not going to fill the position. So Jake was kind of pissed because he wanted to book, he wanted to be creative. And he said, that's one of his favorite things to do. And Jake wanted to basically run, you know, more in the back. Right. And so when he decision making, yes. And when he was, when he wasn't promised that he, uh, he said that, um, Vince, I'm not going to go out there unless you give me my notice, which is exactly what happened. So he, he was granted his release and Jake would ultimately go to WCW. But it's interesting that, that if that didn't happen, there might've been a chance that Jake defeated undertaker. We don't know if that would have affected the outcome or not. Yeah. More than likely Jake would have stood victorious. I imagine, especially with him having more creative control. Yeah, it's just another weird thing. Like you know, the streak so continues what ifs to consider. Yeah. yeah, so just a little side. Just note. like Undertaker playing basketball <laughs> in, in England. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, just uh, good day, mate. My name is Mark Calloway. Now we uh, kind of head into a bit of the lull with the Undertaker character. Um, you know, we had seen him at the highest of highs. He's you know been successful at multiple WrestleManias at this point. And he's, he's been the WWF champion, even though it was only for a few days, less than a week at that time. He still was on, you know, on the immediate up and was a main eventer pretty much a year into his debut. Now he begins uh, facing wrestlers who were managed specifically by Harvey Whippleman throughout the uh, end of 1992 and the rest of 1993. So these wrestlers were uh, Kamala, Giant Gonzalez. And he also headlined the first episode of Monday Night Raw with a victory over Damian Demento. So, you know, we, 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 the Undertaker's still prevalent. He's still, you know, the main focus, but it, it, it's starting. You can see that some injuries are starting to amount. His body is starting to take a toll on itself from, from all of the injuries that he's occurred and not really paid attention to. And his back is starting to bother him at this point in time. Right. And so at this point, we're getting to, like you said, the lull and basically between this point in time with in 92 up until 93, um, up until was it the rumble? Yeah, the rumble. Uh, well, rumble of 94. You're yeah. not really seeing him focused on a lot. He kind no. of goes under the it, which is interesting because, you know, he was propelled so quickly with Hogan in the championship and. and in fact, we won't see Taker get the championship again for, let's see, I'm trying to think here, 13, right? So that would be, the math's horrible right now, on the spot, Jesus, five years. So we yeah. won't see him again in the championship pitcher for another five years, um, which is not necessarily uncommon, but it is a weird, like like you said earlier, he bypassed the mid-card, so no intercontinental feuding or title changes or any, or even going for the intercontinental championship, beats Hulk Hogan. And then kind of does the the wrestler, the star, right? It guy, and then goes into these rando pseudo feuds, which, from what I understand, was sort of the plan because not only were there injuries massing up, like you said, but Taker was kind of being not yet, but he 
and eventually he gets billed more of this now you know later on as kind of like the side almost like the co-main event you know yes. like, almost like what andre yes, he was he wasn't the guy but he was always going to put butts in seats right and that started to show when he faced gonzalez at wrestlemania 9 Yep. Uh, the only reason this is notable is because it's Undertaker's only disqualification win at WrestleMania after the use of chloroform. <laughs> so, I mean, it was it was a very odd match. No one really cared for Giant Gonzalez ever. And, of no. course, the, the biggest meme of it all is Gonzalez coming out in this spandex fursuit. Oh, which looked like God. he had the biggest set of pubes anyone had ever seen. <laughs> I... I, I... There's a bunch of things to unpack there. Number one. Yeah, he, he looked like he had Bob Ross in a, in a leg lock, you know. Just, it really it, it was, did. Really did. I don't, I don't know why the... F- anyway, uh, but the other things, a couple no- things to note here in between. Number one also was the... Uh, he headlined the first episode of Monday Night Raw in January of 1993. Um, but going back to WrestleMania 9, that's one of my favorite WrestleManias visually because it took place in Caesar's Palace. I don't know about you, Jake. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful to be out there. And even the Undertaker's entrance, that's when he had the uh, the raven behind him, you know. And Was it a raven I, or a vulture? Was, I can't remember. A vulture. I think you're right. Yeah, but... Um, Either way, I'm, it looked I'm badass. Not a, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> a bird expert. I'm not an aviator expert. Yeah. But, you know, it was just... It was a very underwhelming match. And you figure for two big men, people were, were looking forward towards more. And it really just didn't go over as I feel like they had, you know, assumed it would. Right. A lot of people look at this as like a kind of a black mark on his WrestleMania record, especially with the disqualification win as well. It's, it's constantly overlooked when they go over <laughs> the history of his WrestleMania streak. Yeah. Can you imagine and, them really bringing up the chloroform during package promos? Yeah. It it is a very, you know, unusual victory. And this leads into his rivalry with Yokozuna, which culminates in a championship casket match at the Royal Uh, Rumble. Ah, yeah, here we go. And during the match, the, uh, you know, the casket match here, Yokozuna sealed the Undertaker in the casket with, you know, several other (laughs) heels at that time that uh, Harvey Whipman managed. And that allowed Yokozuna to win the match. And then The Undertaker, which I always thought this was so weird and odd. <laughs> Why? Was shown from inside the casket. So there was a camera in the casket. And, you know, he, he basically said, you know, that he will return. And then you saw his face kind of, you know, elevate off the screen like he was floating away out of the casket. I know it was supposed to represent his spirit of sorts but it was just it was it was so i don't want to say hokey but i'm I'm actually watching it right now and he yeah they go he goes to kind of slam him in and then he like does this big fight back i can see like i think jeff jarrett which is really funny i see um haku i see bam bam bigelow mr fuji diesel jesus i didn't see that one part there too and early rikishi i'm just looking so they basically I think they even crack open the urn. Yeah, they crack open the urn at one point. Yokozuna actually opens it up, and this like weird green mist comes spewing out of it. So they they end up dragging him limpless into the casket. Um, oh, there's Jim Cornette and a young Earl Hebner. Wow, that's really interesting. So yeah, you hear the gong go off. Um, Adam Bomb. Oh my God, I remember Adam Bomb. I'm just I'm watching it right now, and you see, yeah, the video's in the casket, even though it's from like an aerial shot, and it's a very weird thing. And then he looks at there and says that he's, what was the phrase? He's ascending up? Yeah, he's ascending up towards the heavens, it seemed. <laughs> I remember this. He he was basically, 
it's and so then it weird. And it kind of like flashes almost like an x-ray of him. It That's explodes. That's the best way to describe it. It explodes yeah. into like a negative. And then it shows yes. his body and then they just... <laughs> they pull it up into it the rises up. It reminds me of the the you know the Simpsons with the Poochie, where he just kind of you know Poochie the dog. You know, I had to return to my home planet. Like that's exactly what it felt like. You know, I must go. My planet needs me. Yes, yes, you got that right. So obviously, this was to write the Undertaker off. He was given a lot of time off. You know, at that point in time, seven months was huge. You know, typically, unless you were truly you know, surgically injured, <laughs> you weren't given that long. So no, he didn't appear for seven months after his loss to Yokozuna in the first casket match. And he was given time off, obviously, as we said, for his back injury to give time to heal. And that's where we head into the original dead man era in 1994. Now, the one thing I will say, now, one thing I will say about him, about them doing this uh, to his return. And it's a testament to not only the genius of like how to bring him back, but also, <clears throat> but also in terms of hyping up his return, uh, and a testament to the character is that during the absence they promoted his return by showing clips of people who have claimed to see him, which yeah, I think this is was, genius. This was huge. The speculation was running rampant, and they would even have like little vignettes at uh, untelevised shows and non pay per views, and they would do things where they would have somebody dress up, I guess, in the rafters and, and of other places. They had said at some house shows just to get the crowd excited and be like, "Look, it's the Undertaker. He's up there. Oh, I saw him in the back." I said, so they really put a lot of time, effort, and dedication into keeping his character and the mystique alive. Yeah, I just thought that was very clever. It's something simple, something easy, but also, again, testament to the... Super to the, effective. Yeah. And, of course, we get the return of The Undertaker, kinda, at WrestleMania 10. Yes, The Underfaker. <laughs> and at WrestleMania 10, we see Ted DiBiase introduce The Undertaker back to the WWF, but, of course, this was not Mark Calloway. But, interestingly enough, Brian Lee, yes, the same Brian Lee who's the master of the chokeslam in ECW, who, I didn't realize this, is... um. His is Taker's real life cousin. Yeah, I was not aware of this till I did the research. I, I actually not heard that before, which makes sense. They look very similar, but of course, this was so. This was like you said, the Undertaker. Uh, but it's an imposter Undertaker, and led to the ultimate real return of the Undertaker at SummerSlam, where in the main event we saw the Undertaker versus the Undertaker. Take your bets, folks. Who's gonna win? Uh, yeah. The Undertaker. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think Taker's got a chance on this one. But, of course, the, the, they did, uh, you know, uh, we saw the real Undertaker appearing as a new version of his dead man persona, now represented by different colors, uh, replacing the gray with purple, The which I yeah, honestly... Yeah, he's got this, this light purple look, and it fit his character so much better. It made him look more standout, because like you said, things were so hyper-realistic for the times. You know, you had Doink running around for Cry 6. <laughs> and so you you needed to up his image a little bit, but still make him feel, you know, commanding. And it worked. So you had the black outfit, but just highlighted and accented by the purple gloves, boots, you know, kick pads. It worked out great. Right. And so looking, I'm actually looking at like, you see the, the there's the famous image of them standing face to face with each other. And honest to God, you know, Brian Lee did an amazing job of looking like, like his cousin. I mean, it is it is outstanding Not just to see looking like, but mimicking his movements and his his yes. tempo, his rhythm, everything. He had it really down to a science. So Even the I, tattoos you know, he, are the same. Gets, like it's crazy. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people didn't care for this angle, and they, they kind of look back at it as as again being hokey and and kind of cringe inducing. But 
I, I feel that Brian Lee doesn't get the credit he deserves here for, you know, when, when you look at the, uh, you know, the Kane imposter that happened all these years later, I don't feel like that holds a candle to what we saw with the Underfaker. But like, you know, when you say, and I get your point about being hokey, but I mean, Jesus Christ, did you see how he left? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like when you say hokey, I mean, come on. Let's... Exactly. Fit with the time. So well, it's just yeah. the way people look back at it, but. Yeah, but I, I had to say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm just saying it's just kind of, it, it, you know, to me it's a little bit of the roll of the eyes because it's like, okay, but at the same time it's fucking Undertaker. But, I mean, exactly. yeah. Look, That's look, the thing. If it was anybody else, it would have been completely laughed at and would have never succeeded. But because it was the Undertaker and he stayed so true to this character, there was no deviations. He didn't break character at all. Uh, and it was so beloved by fans, they were willing to suspend their disbelief and accept pretty much anything that was thrown their way. He right. had earned the respect. No, and I and I agree with that. I mean, it just, I don't know, it's just interesting that I think a lot of people are like, we want realistic shit, and then we can give you, like, like but what about The Undertaker? Well, <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, but um, there was uh, what I did like was the end of that match. We saw a uh, the the bout lasted after Bears Undertaker finish off because Paul Bear came back with the real one. Three Tombstone pile drivers and the Druids appeared after that and put the fake one in a casket and wheeled it away, which I thought was a nice little little touch. And sometimes yes, little things yes. like that I, I do the appreciate. Deal. Made it official. You yes. are gone. You have been banished. You know, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. <laughs> Survivor Series event that year, the Undertaker gets his win back. He defeats Yokozuna in a casket match. So that was, you know, a way for him to, as I said, regain his victory there, get a little bit of vengeance. Right. And throughout most of nineteen ninety five, the Undertaker feuded with members of Ted B, uh, DiBiase's Million Dollar Corporation. So that that was pretty much all he did up until that point in time. Uh, later on, we had gone and headed into WrestleMania 11 while The Undertaker was facing King Kong Bundy. Uh, the urn was stolen, and Kama went ahead and antagonized him by melting it into a large gold. <laughs> I remember this, and I was. I'm, like, I'm sorry. That's wow. that shit. That shit's fucking funny to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, formerly Papa Shango. Right, and then, yeah, I was gonna say like <laughs> so Kama Mustafa. Maybe maybe Kama was channeling his inner godfather by making a gigantic ass gold chain early. <laughs> but wrong person to fucking do it oh, with. Train. Jesus. That I mean, it's just again, like we, we, we just okay, so just want to make sure we're, we're recapping, we're on the same page here. In the same show, we've talked about Undertaker having feuds where or Undertaker involving with mass murderer, uh burying somebody alive and possibly having a kid's playset named after it. Um chloroform and now um having his urn that carries his powers being melted into a giant fucking gold necklace. Yeah. Flava <laughs> flave. And, and then Kama goes ahead and, and heads into the Nation of Domination anyways. So <laughs> Jeez. It, it works. Anyway, but um, yes, so at, at WrestleMania 11, we see him taking uh, facing King Kong Bundy. That's when, of course, he said Kama stole the necklace. And then uh, in August, Taker defeats him in a casket match at SummerSlam. So this is like, what, the third casket match we've had at this point? I feel like there's yes, been more. Two against Yokozuna, and uh, this is the third against Kama. So. Yep. Several weeks later, we see Taker, and this is, this is going back again to the whole... Um, you know, Taker's stance. Several weeks later, Undertaker injured his orbital bone near his eye, forcing from him to be out for a while for surgery. 
but then came back at Survivor Series. And so when Taker returned, he was wearing that Phantom of the Opera-like, you know, upper face mask, which, honest to God, I mean, that thing looked badass on him, and I thought it fit, no pun intended, fit perfectly. Absolutely. You know, it was a hell of a presence, and it worked wonders for him and his character. And it was a way to keep him, you know, in ring action at the same time. So it worked nicely. Yes, and so kind of looking back, if you haven't seen uh the mask i mean it just it's it's gray it looks deformed it, it wasn't like it kind of looked like the k mask a little bit a little bit like an earlier like early version of it but uh it's interesting because you know he only broke it on one side but to have the whole mask encompass his face it just again just added to the gimmick the whole thing the purple attire it just, it just fit no pun intended um and again the fact that he's willing to come back with a broken orbital bone uh, he could have been out for much longer. Of course, he did just come back, you know, earlier that year. But the fact that he was like, ah, fuck it, I'm going to come, you know, or sorry, he didn't come back earlier this year. He came back the year prior. He could have taken the time off, but instead decided to come back eh, a few more weeks at a fucking paper. <laughs> God, I never want to piss off The Undertaker. Yeah, absolutely not. And did you know at this point in time that The Undertaker also appeared in a Bollywood film? No, I need well, to hear this. Well, if you said no, that's because he didn't. But Brian Lee, who played the Undertaker during the SummerSlam angle, went on to play the Undertaker again. But he did it in a 1996 Bollywood movie. It was released in '96, but it was being filmed at that time. Asking me to say the name of the film, I couldn't even begin to try and articulate the words in front of me. Hold on, I, I think I but, just found it. <laughs> it's. Kiladion Kakalidai, I think. Kiladion. I think. I, wow. I, maybe, but you know how how <laughs> hilarious is that though? So, but they wanted him to wow. play the Undertaker, and a lot of people thought it was actually the Undertaker in a Bollywood film. So, just a little side extra that was filming at this point in time while the Undertaker is is wearing a face mask, you know, akin to the Phantom of the Opera. His cousin is portraying him in a Bollywood film. So I mean, shit, it wasn't it wasn't that long. But I mean, that's funny. I mean, think of it this way, right? It was over a year. Eh, yeah, I guess. I mean, shit, might as well. I mean, like we we were just praising how much he acted and looked like him. I mean, shit. Before you know, ninety day no complete no compete clauses. Um, yeah. So his team of Darksiders defeated Mabel's team of Royals. And they won at Survivor Series there, you know, that, where he's donning the new mask. And this match marked The Undertaker's second return to TV after having been absent for months. So I just love how uh, random sometimes these Survivor Series names are. And I, I love I like, the, the team spirit and whatnot. Like, I remember uh, the King's Court or like the Jesters or whatever the hell they called them. And then, like, what were the name of the teams again for this year? It, it was the Darksiders taking on Mabel's team of Royals. The Darksiders. <laughs> who um, who was in that group? You have the list of people who were in that I'm group? I'm trying to pull it up here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, let me see. It was... I'm getting a lot of video game references, but not... <laughs> uh, that was what? That was Survivor Series 96. Yes, so it was The Undertaker, Savio Vega, Fatu, and Henry Godwin against the Royals, who was King Mabel, Jerry Lawler, Isaac Yankum, who would later turn to be Kane, Glenn Jacobs, obviously, hmm. and Triple H himself, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Really? Yeah. So What a team that is. That is quite the, uh, quite the interesting <laughs> group. So you there. have Fatu. Mabel, Jerry Lawler. 
Isaac Yankum and Triple H taking on The Undertaker, Savio Vega, Fatu, and Henry Godwin. Man, I, I it's, man, I, I, <laughs> I have, I have no comments. I thought some of the other later Survivor Series were weird, but Jesus Christ. Anyway, he, he he went ahead and dominated most of the match as well, and then he made the first elimination. The Undertaker did by pinning Lawler after a reverse belly to belly pile driver, which you know obviously is the tombstone. And, oh, sorry, that was ninety five. Sorry, that was ninety five Survivor Series. My bad. Yes, yeah, ninety five. But we move ahead and then to Helmsley had a chance to compete against the Undertaker in the match, but opted to escape. As he left the ring, he was chased by Godwin. So who Smart came out of the slot bucket? And the Undertaker <laughs> then eliminated Helmsley by performing the choke slam. And this is around the time where he would start using that move more often to finish matches. Well, the slot bucket? <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, jeez. <laughs> right in that nineties wrestling kids, nineties wrestling. Um, all right, it. so now we're into the Royal Rumble 1996. We're in January, uh, and actually Taker was in a match for the WWE Championship against Bret Hart, but he was unmasked, and um, but Diesel ended up interfering in the match, costing him the championships, which ultimately set up their match at WrestleMania. Uh, it looks like a rematch for the title on the February 5th episode of Raw saw a similar interference, but that, that month's In Your House Rage in the Cage, I actually remember this very vividly, Diesel was facing Hart inside the steel cage match. Takers surprised him emerging from a hole that he ripped through the ring canvas and dragged Diesel down underneath, giving Brett the victory. I thought this was yeah, fucking awesome. Yeah, so I, badass. That was the first time that they ever did that at that point. And just no, I don't think there was any smoke. I don't think there was any sort of like crazy shit. It was just him coming through the ring and just dragging him down, which I thought was fucking awesome. It was the first time something like this had ever been done. And the reaction was monstrous just so huge fans love the angel so much that wwf continued having undertaker do things like this obviously as time went on so so great uh after several more weeks back and forth uh they formulated a singles match between the two at wrestlemania 12 where of course spoiler alert taker gets the win yeah he takes down big daddy cool and decisive faction and this is the undertaker's fifth match on the grind uh, grandest stage and they say that this was his most dangerous opponent yet but uh diesel you know, had been ushered in as the leader of the new generation, and his size and athleticism made him quite the even match for The Undertaker. But as you know, as you said, spoiler alert, The Undertaker walked out with another notch in his belt. Well, the interesting thing is, uh, again, going back to some other fun interviews, Nash had said in an interview that he always hated working big guys because when you have like a guy like him and another big guy, it's like putting two blocks against each other. But he says he always liked Taker because Taker could adapt very easily and he could like do, you know, and again, this is another testament to Taker's ability. And something we didn't really touch upon before was Taker, like the things he could do in the ring. We talked about like the tombstone pile driver, the choke slam, but you talk about things like, you know, um, the old school, like the walking the ropes and then like him doing like a fucking suicide dive through like coming off through the ring like no guy six foot ten does that and he liked that about taker because he could do different things with him that normal other guys his size never fucking did absolutely so uh moving on from his match at wrestlemania 12 his next feud is one of my favorites um, he started his next feud the next night on Raw when Mankind made his debut and interfered in Undertaker's match against Justin Hawk Bradshaw. This is now, this is not quite the, um, we're not getting quite to the Hell in the Cell match. We're not getting it. We don't get to the match between Taker and Mankind until two years later, but two years prior we had these two feuding, which I thought was a very interesting because obviously Mankind was a very dark, different gimmick, 
And then you have Taker, who is a dark, different gimmick. And it's just, I love this shit. This was my, this is because yeah. they did some very different things here. I mean, Mankind it was deranged. He was out of his mind and he seemed to be, you know, a, a bit of a sadomasochist that, that adored pain. He had affinity for violence and no regard for his own safety. So you have someone that, you know, was impenetrable to pain and someone that loves it, you know, going head to head. And it led to one of the, the best feuds in the Undertaker's career, you know. Can't they disagree faced with that. off in so many matches. I got to see them in person at the New Haven Coliseum on Monday Night Raw. And it was incredible to see these two beat each other senseless outside of the ring. So now, just keep in mind, folks, at this point in time, we're also, we're just into the spring of 96. So the Attitude Era is, like, just on the cusp. It hasn't quite kicked yeah, in yet. We're, we're swinging into things slowly. And, and, and this is also the time, you know, where, where we're seeing things become a little bit more extreme. You know, chair shots are becoming more prevalent. Violence is being ticked up for the most part. You know, people are starting to bleed and and... Uh, you're getting the inclusion of hardcore matches and weapons. We see the Undertaker take on Goldust for the Intercontinental Championship at In Your House, Beware the Dog, and Mankind ends up costing the Undertaker the match. So this this really sets their feud into overdrive. Can I just say that if they bring back the name of that pay-per-view, they need to for Roman Reigns? <laughs> right. I'm just saying it would be a great fit. Um, but yeah, it they would, would be. Yeah, they would absolutely. have... They would have Mankind cost him the championship match, as you said, and because of this, this would lead to in one of the most infamous matches in both men's career, the SummerSlam Boiler Room Brawl. And this was totally different because oh, they had just started going... Sloppy bathtub match? I thought it was the sloppy bathtub match. Oh, that's, a, that's a private I, match between I, you and me, Jake. Shh. Sorry, I don't <laughs> want to let the cat out of the bag. No, the feud escalated, as you said, and the Boiler Room Brawl, infamous. Infamous. What a, what a simple concept that was just taken to the next level. The match design, again, you know, this was Mick Foley's home. <laughs> Basically, this was his right. locker room that they had, you know, had done so many vignettes and promos from. It looked like a place made of nightmares, like Freddy Krueger might shy away from there. The way they filmed it in the, you know, with the red light and the darkness behind it and the match itself uh, was relentless. It was. It even eventually spilled over into the audience, but it was one of the more brutal, sadistic-looking matches at that time. This really showcased how hardcore the WWF was willing to get. Now, again, going back to like what we were saying about this being like the pre-attitude era, this is kind of where the feud where we saw a lot of, in my opinion, we start to see like really like the infamacy of like you said, going into crowds, backstage areas, and like just kind of taking the fight away from the ring and just seeing that it can go fucking anywhere. And obviously, I think the Boiler Room Brawl was kind of at that time the culmination of the whole thing. And not only was it just you know very barbaric, like you like you described it perfectly to a T, uh, but then we had another wrinkle in this rivalry. So again, these guys have been feuding since WrestleMania all the way to SummerSlam, and then comes something unprecedented. Yes. I, I mean, we see Paul Bearer, uh, you know, looking, he's holding the urn, and he ends up striking The Undertaker, breaking the hearts of fans in the, in the process. And Paul Bearer turns heel and aligns with, with mankind. And this, this sets off all the chain of events culminating in the debut of another superstar. So 
Right. But uh, after we see him get the the, the betrayal, um, and this is actually funny because I forgot to mention this, and I, I guess technically he did win this one. Um, it just, I, I like this because it was good storytelling with, with, again, like we mentioned before, Paul Bearer never managed anyone else except for The Undertaker. You had your Bobby Haynes, you had your Jimmy Hart's, they managed different people, but, but Paul Bearer was always loyal to The Undertaker. And so really, what else could you do but have him manage a guy who was very similar, very dark, very sadistic, and have him, you know, add another notch to this rivalry? So Taker to, to, take it, kept it going, and then this resulted in the very first ever buried alive match. The main yeah, event. How do you how do you go to the next level here? Really, you know, I mean, Hell in a Cell, but right? Hell in a Cell's not happening yet. Not for another year. Yeah. So so where do they go from here? And it's like they just had a boiler room brawl. The fans are are bloodthirsty at this point with how just incredibly hardcore that match was for the times. And yet again, they managed to step it up with a buried alive match. I mean, we've seen casket matches and those are, are fairly tame. You know, realistically, what are you doing? You're putting somebody in a box. You're not sealing them. You're not doing anything that's really, you know, dastardly. The mindset of it. OK, you're putting somebody into a coffin. That's their final resting place. Yeah. But this you're you're you know, the, especially the way that it was booked and billed and all the vignettes and, and uh, promos that led up to this. It was so unprecedented. I remember I I could not babysit and mow enough lawns and everything at this point in time to save up money for this pay-per-view. This had to be seen. <laughs> I had friends and I clamoring or you know changed together to make sure we could get in your house eleven buried alive. What and do you think of the idea about the buried alive match in general? I love the concept. I really do, especially when it was supposedly, you know, at culminating a feud at that point in time. I mean, it, they, he was he was going to stray from mankind for a little bit, and I I believe they had planned on having them have separate paths for longer, but a few few issues backstage made them face each other a little bit sooner than planned. Mm -hmm. But I love the concept. You know, you you have just it's so finite, and and being buried alive is a fear of so many, and and it, it just it's it's such a simple thing to execute. You know, and, and it is rather safe by the way that they explained it, you know, when they had the dirt dumped and all that. And um, I, I just I love the match idea. It is it is definitely different, <laughs> to say the least. So unique. And, and it, it really is just such a, a menacing concept and it fits so well with The Undertaker. You know, it, it, it coincided with his his gimmick and his theme so much. You're burying someone alive, you know, it just. I felt like it worked straight across the board. Now, do we dare go into the details of how it's done? <laughs> we could. I mean. Okay. Because I'm not sure if we want to dive that deep or, or ruin the magic. But spoiler alert, they're not really buried alive. <gasps> no, no. Granted, there's there's a, a side compartment or a trap room. So when you yes. go down before the, uh, you know, whatever they use at that point in time, whether it was people showing the dirt in, the bucket loaders, whatever it may be, right. there's a side compartment. And then they're actually able to, it's almost like a small series of tunnels that they have pre-dug out or, you know, built ahead of time. They either have, you know, like a plexiglass box or something of that sorts. And that's why, because the Undertaker's arm popped up through the end of the match, through the dirt. And that was to, you know, overstate that he will return. 
Uh, you know, we've seen him do that. We've also seen, uh, you know, fire come out so they can have pyro set up and whatnot. But you're obviously you're not really being buried alive. No. Right. If you if you look in when they do the shots into into the into the pit beforehand, which, by the way, is why the pit is like far away from the ring and it's separated out near the entryway. If you notice, like location wise, it's always where it seems to be. But if you ever see them when they do the camera shot into the pit, you can see on it's usually if you're looking at the pit, like if you're standing at the grave, it's usually yeah, if the you're le- looking at the tombstone. It's usually the left side. Um, yes, so and they when- usually try to. You know, cut your view. They do it. They film it at such an angle where you're never looking straight down. You're always looking at eye level or a little bit more of a uh, like a 70 degree angle. You know, you've got more of a tilt to it. Right. You don't want to see head on or straight down because then you'd be able to see. That's why they had it angled as such where the tombstone was back towards the fans. So they were looking over and the tombstone would cover the trap part of it. Exactly, which is very smart. And again, another reason why you see, you know, usually like a a machine, like a bulldozer or whatever, burying them as opposed to like just, imagine that taking fucking forever to just have someone like, man, this is going to take me a fucking while to bury this guy alive, just like one piece after the other and they have to take a fucking break and just be there for fucking three (laughs) hours. Jesus. They got somebody there with a cooler with sandwiches, you know. Now, one (laughs) of the things that did perplex me about this event and it changed at later times, but the Undertaker won the match. He choke slammed, Mc, you know, mankind. I was going to say McFoley into the open grave. Right. But it was the Undertaker who was ultimately buried alive. Right. We saw, you know, help of several wrestlers, and the Executioner had come out at that point in time. The Undertaker got buried alive, and that's when we saw his, you know, arm go ahead and pop through the dirt, and everybody ran away when the grave started to almost shake. In a sense, it was it was a great, you know, sight, but. I was at my young, you know, age there, roughly 10 years old, questioning how, well, didn't he lose then if he was buried alive? And, you know, it was, it was a little confusing, but. Well, right. That <clears throat> that was how it was originally before where they just throw them in the grave. But now it's like, yeah, you have to put the entire part, actual dirt on them, yeah, which I felt like that made more sense. You know, you're yeah, you would win the buried alive match by burying them alive, not just putting them in the grave. You know, similar to the casket match, you have to make sure you close the lid. You can't just put them in there. Same idea. Right, well, they call it a shallow grave match. They'll call it a fucking bar- <laughs> semantics. <laughs> exactly. We're getting, we're, we're talking about the same again. Chloroform, convicted person, putting him in the casket. We're we're gonna go through some shit. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so, after being buried alive, the Undertaker returns at Survivor Series again. Like I said, pitting him against mankind. Um, but unfortunately, it, you know, they, they weren't supposed to meet up with each other again at this point in time, but there was some issues, some injuries, and, and they they were, you know, facing each other off against sooner than uh, had planned. They wanted right, because it was only a month later. In different directions, exactly. They wanted them to have the Buried Alive match be more finite and, and, and their feud, which was the set plan. But looking through interviews and whatnot, there's no definitive answer as to why it was so soon for them to face off again, just that it wasn't the original plan. Hmm. But now there was a stipulation for this match. There was a, you know, uh, Paul Bearer hanging above the ring and closing the steel cage. So if the Undertaker won the match, he would be able to get his hands on Bearer. And how did how did you feel about this stipulation? I, I, this is obviously a throwback because you you have you know back in the in the more specifically the NWA used to do it where you would have a you know um, the manager or the person who constantly interfered 
being hanging up. They, we've seen this done a couple times in modern times. They did it with Jericho and Kevin Owens. They did it with um, Paul Ellering. They've done it with Enzo. Oh, God, they did it with Enzo. Um, where they suspend <laughs> someone in a cage. Right, the shark cage thing, which honestly I like if it's done at the right time. But I think that, like you said, with the fact that they kind of rushed this thing and if there was more focus on like i'm not saying it's a bad stipulation i think it's it's actually kind of clever um especially if like the manager the person in question has been the constant reason why someone's been winning or whatnot i felt like it was a little out of place right here because it's not yes, about it's not about taker or it's not about paul bearer it's about mankind it's about you know the executioner which we know he'll eventually feud with after this but the i just felt was not a great gimmick either it, it no, felt like but... a slight on the undertaker and it was very poorly received and um the person hey. portraying the executioner uh gordy remember his name here yeah terry bam bam gordy from the yeah. freebirds there we go you know uh couldn't remember his first name. Too much, too much information going in. I, I know. Yeah, he he did a good job, but you know, it, it just it didn't mesh well. The styles no, kind of clashed. It, and no, I, and I get that. That, that and trust me, that's not going to be the last time that happens with Undertaker and his opponents. We we know that. But I just felt like it was a little out of place to have this. If if they did this, in my opinion, what they should have done was they should have switched it. They should have this match happen first before the buried alive. Yes, and had they stuck to their original plan, I I think this wouldn't have happened at all. But right, because then with with Paul Bearer costing Taker the match, the Boiler Room Brawl, then you take Bearer out of the equation, then you do that, which leads into the Barry. That that's the way I would have done. I would have switched the two. Absolutely. But either way, um, Taker. If the the stipulation was if Taker won, he gets his hands on Bearer. Taker did win the match, but like we said, Executioner got involved so that uh, Bearer was able to escape Undertaker's clutches. Spoiler alert, Taker's still going to get his hands on Paul Bearer in 2004. We'll get to that in part two, which I cannot wait to talk about that. <laughs> can't wait to talk about I that. I cannot wait to talk about that. Um, yeah, it's, so the, this is also when The Undertaker starts to take on more of a uh, adult-oriented uh, look. Yeah, almost you know, like gothic. To this attitude era change, yes. He's got a gothic, brash, you know, rebelling persona going on here. It's a new form, and this is leading into him becoming the Lord of Darkness, uh, right. So. so so after Survivor Series, Taker takes a uh, takes a shot at the Executioner uh, at In Your House 12. He defeats him in a <laughs> Armageddon <laughs> rules match. Jesus, how many freaking stipulations do we need at this point? Good God. Um, yeah, and this was this was odd. I mean, it was just a, a simple gimmick, you know, basically no disqualification. Yeah, there was no real special needs for that one. Uh, then, and this is one that I, I almost honest to God, completely fucking forgot about. He moves on to Vader at the Rumble in 97, um, which, of course, fucking Paul Bearer gets involved with that one and costs Taker that match. Man, Bearer is a fucking, like, plague on Taker sometimes. Jesus Christ. He really is. He he cost him more than, you know, we remember, honestly. Damn. More uh, but than I even had honestly imagined until I went back to look through all the you know the notes for the show. But I did, I did like the way they kind of wove this into the actual Rumble match itself. So they had the match one-on-one. -on -one. Taker loses after Bearer interferes for Vader. Then they clash in the match itself, and they made it to the final parts of the Rumble match, but both were eliminated by Austin, 
which is the same Rumble where he crept back into the match after he was eliminated, but no one saw it. Which, which <laughs> yeah. I gotta tell you, that's gonna be one of my favorite fucking things of Rumbles. Like for him, like for someone to get eliminated, not notice, and then slide back in, fucking genius. And the commentary was great at that point in time too for that. Oh, so good. He can't um, do that. So, yeah, yeah then he faced that. both Vader and Austin in a Four Corners elimination match for the vacant WWF Championship. That's at In Your House 13, Final Four. And Bret Hart won. And then the following month, The Undertaker managed to win the title for the second time. So his second WWF Championship here by defeating Psycho Sid at WrestleMania 13. WrestleMania 13 is definitely a very weird WrestleMania because I think even though it's, again, another addition for Taker's streak... Um, and also, it's the first time at this point in time and, and for quite a while that we've seen Taker in the main event of WrestleMania. It, this one's kind of overshadowed because the big match that everyone talks about in this one is obviously the submission match so between cool. Hart and Brett. Yeah, which it, which is Austin's yeah. favorite match. I mean, it's just kind of interesting. And by the way, I was just looking at the card for this WrestleMania because I feel like this is a very forgotten WrestleMania. In some ways, I can understand. Dude, I was just looking at the card for this and fucking Mankind and Vader are a tag team. Yeah, and you figure this is at, like like you said, the, the Attitude Era is really starting to kick off now. And... There's a lot changing. So the old guard is kind of mixing with the new guard, and there's a lot of new talent coming in. You know, Triple H is starting to change a bit. Michaels is, is I don't want to say coming over to the forefront, but he's, his, his attitude is changing, kind of losing his smile, you know, as we heard. Yeah. Uh, it's just there's, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. A lot of things are changing, and WrestleMania 13 certainly shows that for better or for worse. I feel like that was kind of the catalyst of the – I mean, granted, there you could, there's a lot of moments where you can pinpoint to the catalyst of the Attitude Era. But if you're looking between like from a yearly standpoint, I think that between 13 and 14 – is when you really start to get the 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 surge of the attitude area, yeah. in my opinion. Fourteen, I feel like you're you're in full effect. You know, it, it, the time has has come, but thirteen is is on the precipice of change, and the 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 silly, mundane, hokey, traditional aspects of wrestling are on the way out. Right, but now comes one of my f- doesn't seem to hold on. Right. But now, speaking of which, comes one of my favorite storylines in Taker's career. And that's, of so course... One of my favorites in, in wrestling history. Oh, all right. That's, that, there you go. In May of 1997, so a couple months after WrestleMania 13, after Taker's lost the championship, Paul Bearer attempts to rejoin Taker using the ultimatum of revealing Undertaker's deepest, darkest secret to the world. Barry, uh, Paul Bearer accused the Undertaker of having burned down the family funeral home business when he was a child, killing his parents and, uh, uh, and also his younger half-brother as well. Taker denied this. However, Bearer claimed to have proof in the form of Taker's alive and well half-brother Kane, who had survived through horribly, uh, though horribly scarred and burned. Bearer said he raised Kane after the fire, having him institutionalized from the date of the fire all the way to adulthood, and ever since the fire, Kane had been waiting to exact revenge on his older brother, and in defense, though, Taker said that Kane, a pyromaniac, had been the one to set the fire and could not have possibly even survived. And I mean, even- you had to unpack all that just as that. Bearer is, is coming in and saying, I know what you did. If I don't, you know, you you and I don't reunite, I'm going to tell the world what you've done. Yeah. You, you know, and, and then it comes to light anyways. So <laughs> you know, it, it is a lot to unpack. There. I mean, he, he says that he has a half brother that died, even though he was the one who was the pyromaniac who did it. It was it was a lot to 
a lot to do there. And then I also love the little note of, by the way, Perer did unintentionally admit it to having Taker's mother having an affair with him. So, so not only that. Oh, this is not just, you know, <laughs> it, it was revealed that, that, oh, look at that. This is your half-brother. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Jesus. Um, yeah, so Undertaker spent his life under the impression that Kane was fully related to him and his family. So it was during that time that the Undertaker also made an appearance in uh, Michinoku Pro Wrestling, you know, and, uh, defeating Hakushi in a singles match, which is, uh, you know, certainly an, an odd standpoint as well. So you have everything going on with this this half-brother, sibling, pyromaniac-fueled storyline. And then uh, he's just going to pop out really quick and make a quick appearance. <laughs> By the way, I'm just going to make a quick move to Japan real fast. I'll be right back. But the the thing that I want to I want to stress about like that whole thing and the reason I'm bringing it up here is because this is all done leading uh, you know up to and including SummerSlam, right? Yeah. So this is this is this is May to August of 1997. Okay. Yeah, they're so, spending a ton of time and and talk about having patience. They're exactly they're, such a slow burn. Pun intended. They're talking about the the younger half brother. They're they're saying, you know, he was he was scarred, and he's a horrendous, disfigured monster who was in a psych ward, institutionalized for the better part of his life, and he's solely stricken and, and fueled by rage to you know avenge the uh, <laughs> the wrongdoings of his life. He wants revenge on the Undertaker, and he has aspirations of being deeper. the mayor of Knox County. <laughs> that as well that's the craziest he, part of the whole thing folks and he, he loves to go on dates with women named katie but we won't get into that so <laughs> I, man if we do one on kane jesus <laughs> ugh, that's a that's another mess itself so like you said just such a such a great time in wrestling because they have these overarching stories i mean week to week you see that the matches happen the small things yeah you know, he's still feuding with you know uh stone cold and and you see a bit more with, you know, Bret Hart and him going for the title. But the overarching story is everything having to do with his half brother. So, right. But while all this is going on, like, like you said, slow burn, pun intended, is that, you know, they're introducing this idea. Essentially, this like kind of catalyst starts in May and we ultimately won't see Kane in person until October. So not only do they have a long storyline building up to a moment which i thought was awesome and we'll get to kane's debut in a little bit um but they do it in like a non-busy season like it's a weird like normally you see them like build up something like this for like wrestlemania or SummerSlam or something like that and they don't do it on either one and ultimately this thing would it, it, you know for for better intensive purposes culminate at wrestlemania so you're talking about almost a year-long you know what I mean? Like it's 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 astonishing that you will, and I I, I guarantee you, you probably not see anything ever like this. Whether as far as the in depth process of it or the the length of the build in current wrestling, I don't think you'll ever see that, especially in WWE. No, certainly not. That's for sure. It's it just I don't know. I just that, that kind of takes me back that like they spent so much time on this. You know what I mean? Just crazy. Absolutely, to me. and that's why I say I love long-term booking like this because the payoffs you know they i think that's one of the issues and things we're missing today and, and they they you know because they're worried oh if the payoff isn't worth it we wasted all this time 
but I feel like you're wasting all this time anyways with lackluster storylines. So. Right. So while this is all going on at the same time, right? So this is all going on. We see Taker start to begin a rivalry now with Shawn Michaels. Now, this all started at SummerSlam when uh, Taker was facing Bret Hart for the championship. Um, and Shawn was the referee. And Shawn and Bret were kind of having their own thing. But Shawn accidentally hit Taker with a steel share that he was supposed to hit with Bret, ultimately costing Taker the championship. So now they're off to the races with that, which... I, it's it's funny how you know you go back now and think man these two are going to have even better matches almost a decade later it's fucking nuts um after a double count out draw during the ground zero in your house taker challenge michaels to the very first ever hell in a cell match at B- bad blood in your house and of course this is where we see the debut of kane so during this match taker's storyline brother half uh, half brother kane finally made his debut by ripping off the door to the Hell in the Cell and giving Taker the Tombstone Pile Driver, after of course doing the whole pyro off of the uh, turnbuckles, hits the Tombstone, allows T- Shawn Michaels to get the pinfall victory. That is, I-, I loved everything about this. And fun fact: the person who to credit this for was Jim Cornette. Jim Cornette handpicked yeah, Cornette of all people. Yep, Jim Cornette picked Glenn Jacobs to portray the character. He also said that he got the idea for Kane ripping the door off from Jason from the Jason movie, Jason Voorhees. And, yeah. uh, man, you talk uh, about a fucking debut. Brilliant. Well, I mean, like you said, to unpack this, uh, we've said this a few times with The Undertaker, but it can't be overstated. Unparalleled. We, we have this slow burn, this story that progresses over many months, close to six months at this point in time. And, it, you know, here we, here we go. We're, we're in this unparalleled monstrous structure called the Hell in a Cell. It is this gigantic steel cage it, the thing is barbaric and and torturous already and we have you know this this incredible matchup already happening the lights go out paul bearer walks out we have the pyro go off and then you know the red lights and and the music the orchestra music that hits for kane and you hear I, it was vince at that point in time you know i believe right that's it it's gotta be kane you know and it just yes just incredible absolutely incredible and like you said then the door gets ripped off the cell and they stand face to face staring at each other in the eyes and the stare down felt like it lasted forever and you got goosebumps and chills you know this is and and he's monstrous he's just as big if not bigger he looked like than the undertaker he's got this big you know hurling stature and and his size is just monstrous everything about him screams you know, evil and, and the entire getup with the leather that, you know, the, the, the singlet that he had, it was just, it, it, the whole thing was incredible. So we see undertaker kind of refusing to attack him and ends up getting, you know, a tombstone pile driver of his own, which is, as you know, undertaker's finisher. And it was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. HBK gets the win and Kane has debuted officially. Now we'll probably I, I I'm pretty confident we will do a Kane episode down the road. So I'm gonna try and give this like the right amount of balance because I don't want to go too much into this because I'm sure that we'll probably repeat ourselves, but fuck it. Um this is the Undertaker one. But again, and like Jake said, this is one of his favorites of all time. This is definitely one of my favorite taker ones, no questions asked, for all the reasons we just mentioned. And it really is like a lot to take in. You're having a first time ever hell in the cell where you have a cage with a roof on it. But the cage goes to the outside of the floor, so you can even do more stuff like that. So you have 
I don't know. It just it, it, there's a lot of crazy shit that Taker does in his career that we were joking yeah. about before, and now he's being part of like a lot of these other like first time ever things. It's it's insane. The pyro, the ring pyro, and the turnbuckles. I, I mean, just just so many angles of this to consider. It, it was all just fantastic. The, so, the the commentary, the music, the crowd, every bit of it was next level. So exciting. So of course, the entire time this is going on, we see. Taker constantly being challenged by Kane and Paul Bearer um, for to for him to face each other, but Taker constantly, constantly refuses to fight him. Um, yeah, he gets out of the ring, leaves, walks away, takes a beating, whatever it may be, but he will not strike his brother. Right. So he continues his route with rivalry with Shawn Michaels to once again shocker another casket match at the Royal Rumble. There seems to be <laughs> themes with casket matches at the fucking Royal Rumble. Did the Royal up on Rumble, that? yeah, it certainly the feels fuck? that way. Now, this is also the same one where Sean really hurt his back on the way out. If you guys go back and watch, this is one where Taker does like a back body drop. And Sean, like, I don't know if he like barely misses the coffin, but he fucking like he, he clips the he back the, of his the lip. Uh, yeah, the Ugh. edge of it cracks right into his spine. Shit. And it's like his mid spine, almost lower. It's him just Shit. right. And he kind of like arcs his back over the edge of the coffin. Very painful. I just argue my back now. Yeah. Argue, you know, arguably agitates previous injuries as well. Um, just, just real unfortunate. So, and then we're on raw, you know, Kane, you'd see him ally with his brother against D generation X at that point. But at the event, Kane traps undertaker in the coffin, (laughs) padlocks the lid of the casket and sets the fucking thing on fire. Connor sets it on fire. (laughs) The victory. Spoiler alert, that won't be the only time that ever happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. You'd but. think he'd learn. Anyway, I'm laughing just because, like, you know, the only reason I'm laughing at this shit is because when people, and I've heard, and I'm guilty of this too, when we when we take wrestling too seriously sometimes, it's like shit like this that makes me laugh. And like, yeah, maybe we oh, should have yeah. to take it too much. But anyway, I mean, but yeah. He set a man on fire. He set a convicted felon arsonist on fire. <laughs> <laughs> with chloroform yeah it, it's fucking it gets it's it's gonna get weird um but yes and so so let me just make sure i get this right so raw happens kane teams with taker against michael's um against michael's dx but then yeah, at, at, at the that swing of things with that stable but at oh no! But at but then at the rumble six days later, Kane traps him in the coffin, padlock, and then sets him ablaze. Yeah, yeah. He goes ahead and you know surprises the Undertaker. Although who I thought he could trust his brother. So, but I do like the fact that you know afterwards they open up the casket and it's and it's gone. I mean, granted, he could have been a fucking pile of ashes, but oh, shit. Yeah. He, but you know, but how they did that was fantastic. You know, the the yet again can't be overstated. It was such a fast sequence of events, too, that you don't even notice that he's not going to be in the casket. So. I, I, do, I do love, though, all, well, and, and we all know how he did it, but I'm not going to reveal any more magician secrets at this point. But I do love the fact that, like, Taker refuses to fight Kane this entire time. But you know what? After he tried to set me on fire, I'm like, enough enough. Enough's enough. I have to kick his ass. So, of course, after being gone for two months, Taker returns and faces his brother Kane at WrestleMania 14 right here in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's where we see him finally defeat his brother. Now, the reason I like this one particularly is because, you know, at this point, this is what, Taker's sixth? I'm trying to remember how many people he's fought at Mania at this point. So we had seven, eight, nine, eleven, 
12, 13. So they were up to, this is his seventh op- opponent at WrestleMania. This, this yes, is being a seven. seven. This will be the first time he fights Kane at WrestleMania. And I think out of all of them up until this point, this is the person who puts up the most fight. I think this is the one where, you know, again, the streak isn't really a thing yet, even though, you know, people hasn't really put it two and two together. But I think that out of all the other matches, because I've seen all the streak matches before, I think this is the one where, because Kane's so similar and the backstory and all that, I think Kane was the one who, if there was going to be anybody who you thought would be the first person to beat Undertaker at WrestleMania, at this point in time, it would be him. Yeah, plus, I mean, Kane kicks out of two tombstone pile drivers. Right, that's what I mean. Like, little things like that. Unprecedented, and, and the story for this was just next level so taker honestly. so taker has been in the very first era of ever buried alive match he's been at the very first ever hell in the cell match so it makes sense that right after wrestlemania kane and undertaker have the very first ever fucking inferno match this this i rented on vhs at a local <laughs> video store so many times this particular tape it would have been cheaper for me to buy it five times than how many Seriously. times Seriously. Lockbuster must have loved you. It was Tommy K's videos, actually. Oh, okay. Close enough. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was this was it for me. I loved the idea of everything that they had done so far culminating in a match where you're going to set someone on fire. Right. I mean, and think I mean, about it. How poetic is that? How, how ostentatious? How, how just perfect? What's left to do at that point? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we've we've seen so much of their history explained, you know, and and, and it it, it just how else could you culminate this feud besides setting someone ablaze? And and that's the other that's the other part of it, too, is like you said, like, I I mean, what else is there to do? But realistically, when I was first hearing about this, you know, um, I was curious, like, okay, what like how? How, how are they going to do this? You know what I mean? Because like, how how are you going to, how are you going to have the uh, have somebody else set on fire? How are you going to fucking do it? And the way they managed it on the outside with you know the the production assistant, you know, controlling the flames, and every time they would jump, you know, or, or land on the mat. They would, you know, hit oh, the yeah. gas and the flames would rise up even higher. All of it. I, I always wish that I could have seen this match in person. Visually, it was beautiful to have like the, 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 the rim of the ring outside the apron with the flames. You're right. Every time like a slam or a drop or something like that. I remember playing it in like video games in the future where you see the flames just rise up. It was visually it was very intimidating, but I just felt like like oh, like <laughs> How in the fuck are they actually going to pull this off? The Buried Alive match is a bit of a stretch. Like, you know, okay, we know how it's done. The casket match, same idea. But, like, how in the fuck are you going to pull off having someone getting set on fucking fire? That's what and I was trying to figure out. And they I, did was, I was as well. And it worked well with Kane having his, you know, uh, costume, you know, it, essentially it covered both of his arms and his entire body. So he worked as a great scapegoat for that one. <laughs> I mean, the Undertaker, you know, jumps and, and Kane, they both end up on the outside of the ring and Undertaker shoves Kane and his arm goes back into the uh, pyro light on the outside and he sets Kane's right arm on fire and Kane ends up running up the 
the ramp and to the outside. And That's right. Undertaker, how, he won. How the fuck did he get outside the ring? I can't remember now. Uh, the Undertaker, I know, leapt to the outside. I, I think he threw Kane over. I'm trying to recall now. But I was going to say, how the, the they had to have. Over the flame. Yes, I do remember that visual, but I'm like, damn. I'm trying to remember how Kane <laughs> got to the outside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, did they like shut, they shut the power off for a second? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know. But... We so that so just to recap a little bit of of what's just been going on. So we're talking. This is October, right? So we started off with Kane returning or debuting October of '97. I just want to throw this out there. So October of '97, first ever Hell in the Cell, Kane shows up. In April of or May of 1998, we have the Inferno match. That's April, right? In June. Yes. Of 1998, Taker's part of another infamous fucking moment that just makes your jaw drop. So he, it wasn't bad enough that he set his half-brother on fire, but two months later, roughly, comes the infamous Hell in the Cell match at King of the Ring 1998 with Mankind. Um, I'm going to let you start with this one, Jake, because I'm sure there's a lot of things we have a lot of similar opinions and just overall... Uh, mind fucks about this moment yeah so you know we're, we're at king of the ring and mankind comes out and he ends up ascending to the top of the roof which is 16 feet high and you, you know he ends up climbing all the way up top there with a steel chair in tow i believe at this at this point yes and he's kind of goading the undertaker into climbing up and fighting starting the match at the top of the hell in a cell. So already we're like, what are you doing? You crazy bastard. Like, and, and the undertaker's music hits, he comes out, he walks, you know, towards the cell and there he starts to ascend to the heavens as well. He climbs up to the top of the ring and they start to do battle right away. You know, fists are flying. And I, in my mind, I'm like, Oh wow. They're going to, they're going to brawl up top for a little bit. They'll get some chair shots in and then they'll climb back down and, you know, they have to get into the ring because the, the match hasn't even started. The bell has not rung. <laughs> well, uh, the undertaker gave mankind the shortcut to the bottom by throwing him off the roof <laughs> and onto the broadcast table below. Or it was a pre-planned move. Yeah. And, but my God, I mean, JR's commentary here stands out in my mind i think above all else you know my god he's been broken in half and it yeah, just, yeah we've heard the sound bite so many times i mean yeah uh, just mankind landed perfect i mean fully really hit the best landing he could landing taking most of it on his hip it looked like but he comes crashing down through the spanish broadcast table below and i mean crashing down thunderous hard crash and he looks lifeless i in my you know, childlike wonder. I'm like, he's dead. There's, there's no way about it. He came down so hard. He's not moving. He's dead. I remember he slid under the barricade. Remember oh, like yeah. When he, when he, he lands right half of his body. Yeah. And then slides halfway through. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. He fell sick. The fell. He was thrown 16 <laughs> feet off of the cell. So the cell roof was 16 feet from the floor. And yeah, I mean, he went 16 feet down, but he also flew. I think it was like 20 feet out total. So. When when you see when you go back when you went whenever you see someone put through a table, right? Usually it's a clean break. You can see where it's like you know it's it's usually right in the middle most of the time when it actually wants to fucking work. 
the way that the camera angle was panned beautifully, by the way, I, I know it's a pre-planned spot, but fuck, the, the, the fact that the cameraman was in the most, I, I mean, he should have gotten a raise for, for getting that shot at that time. It's one thing to see it from like the hard cam when they did it, like the zoom in, but to have the guy like right on the corner of that announce table and ready for that moment was, I mean, Jesus. Right but, there. But the, but the table to me from that angle looked like it fucking disintegrated. It wasn't just like oh, a clean oh, breakthrough. Absolutely. It's just like it's gone. Like the table never fucking existed. Ugh. Yeah, it just that then exploded into nothingness. So now everyone runs out from the back. He he looks unconscious at the very minimum. And he was more okay here than he was later on. But uh Terry Funk and a few others, you know, the stretcher gets gets brought out and they start to wheel Mick Foley to the back. Mankind's done. The match never even started, and it's over already. And the Undertaker's still on top of the cell. And while being wheeled into the back, he gets off the damn stretcher, you know, and, and starts to climb the cell again and goes up top and begins to battle the Undertaker again. I do love the commentary at this point in time. Like you said earlier, JR is like, you get used, son of a bitch is standing. I don't know how, but like, like you know, is he want, and then like you see, like the, the, again, the camera did a great work. You see him like working on his shoulder, trying to go back. And then you hear him, JR goes, he wants to go back up. And there's this, <laughs> there's this shot of Taker because at this point they're lifting the cell up, like you said, to get Mankind out. And Taker is still climbing down. So he's halfway climbing down the cell and he's just looking. They, they have a shot of him looking at, at Mankind like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. That's the best way I could describe the look on Taker's face. Absolutely. You know, Mark here is, is just not expecting him to walk away. And even though that was a pre-planned spot, he was said, I was worried that I killed him. I mean, so, what do you expect? I mean, no, so he's now, fine. Now that you know that looks like the worst visually being thrown from the top, but it was later when you know mankind climbs back to the top, he gets choke slammed onto the top grating of the cell. The roof of the cell collapsed. The zip ties that they had to keep the cell in place for the top for the, the wire frame gives way from their weight and you can see the cell as they're walking kind of break away under the weight of their feet so it already didn't look like it was you know well held together and that was not and planned no no so now the roof collapses mankind falls all the way down onto the ring legitimately knocking him unconscious and when he goes down the the chair falls with him knocking him in the mouth and i believe that's when his tooth was knocked out and came back out through his correct nose. And actually, now he has a tooth hanging out of his nostril, a hole in his lip. He's concussed and he's knocked unconscious. So Terry Funk, by the way, was ringside of uh, this whole thing, right? And he was there when he was helping Mick get to the back the first time. And I think there's a shot. I, I can't remember where you can find it. I'm sure if you dig hard enough on the network, you can find it. But there's a shot of of Terry Funk when he's watching this happen, and then he sees mankind get choke slammed he takes his hat on and like slams it down which i just think is the funniest fucking reaction like you ever see like yeah. the, the, those old cartoons when someone's at a racetrack and someone loses and they throw their hat down and just <laughs> like i'm like they start stomping on it yeah. yeah i'm like he's reacting like that to fucking seeing like a man who he considers like a son or a brother getting fucking killed like you're like god damn it mick like i just fucking thought that was the funniest fucking reaction like damn it he did it again we said he was so angry that Mick decided to climb back up. I mean, 
him and Terry, I mean, Terry Fung might, might be another fun one we should do. I'm, I'm writing down a list of all these ones we should be oh, doing. Yeah. And Terry Fung's so, got some horror stories. Mankind eventually comes to some of his senses, not full, and they they continue to battle it out inside the ring. Undertaker lowers himself into the ring from the roof, and they go ahead. They battle a little bit. They they you know each get in a few bits more of offense, and then mankind breaks out thumbtacks and lays them <laughs> on the on the mat of the ring. By the way, there's also a spot where he tried to pick up the steel steps and he couldn't because his shoulder was separated. Yeah, it was dislocated at that point, so he could not lift the the ring stairs. <laughs> so then he gets sent, you know, feet overhead by a back body drop onto the thumbtacks and then gets a choke slam onto them as well. And then the Undertaker performs a tombstone pile driver for the win. Uh, you you then see Mick in the corner and what everyone thought he was smiling. You see his tooth hanging basically out of his, his nostril and he looks like he's smiling the sadistic bastard but really what he's doing is trying to stop the bleeding from the hole that's in his mouth by using his tongue to apply pressure and what a lot of people i don't think realize either is that all this happens and then you have kane and stone cold steve austin after this match in a first blood match right it was yeah it was first blood yes and to for the the championship he has to do a run-in. <laughs> Undertaker and Mick Foley, they run into the goddamn match. <laughs> Mick not only destroys himself here, but he runs into the, the main event. Uh, that, that the main event no. for King of the Ring. No. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it really is fucking nuts. You're right, because I remember, like, going to do a run-in, like, uh... No, like, can you even walk? Can you stand? Because why? I don't how, know he, how he managed to do it. I don't know how he his poor uh, wife. Well, I lo- I still love the story of like when he had his match with Edge. Not to get too sidetracked, but he had his match with Edge at WrestleMania, and Mick Foley's wife calls Mick, and he goes, and she goes, "Is Edge okay?" Yeah. <laughs> so I think at this point she's fucking used to it. But anyway, yeah, she, fucking she's, insane. It, it's nothing she's not accustomed to. So we we can't really well, put- one of the, the number one moments of all time. You know that that's for sure. Uh, absolutely, just just stand out from both participants here. The Undertaker for doling out the punishment, and Mick for taking. I mean, we we can describe this all we want. You, if you haven't seen it, you need to be warned. But you need to see this because we can't. You'll see why it's hard for us to describe these things half yes, the time. It, it just, is truly no matter how much of a picture we can paint. We, we can't do it proper justice. What I, what I would definitely recommend doing is go watch the actual match and then definitely go watch the uh, special they did on the network with Mick Foley. I think it is a very good insight as far as um, the preparation, the mindset, what was going on, Taker's thoughts, all that stuff. Um, it is a very, very well done one-man show by itself with Mick, but it specifically goes into a lot more detail about that particular match that I definitely recommend checking out on the network. They've been pumping out some really good stuff on the network lately, honest to God. Hashtag sponsorship. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but now, we're moving on from, I don't know how the fuck we're going to top that. I'm sure we will. Uh, we saw the fully loaded in your house, fully loaded pay-per-view coming at you in July of 1998. So about two months later, uh, Taker and Stone Cold Steve Austin defeat Kane and Mankind to win the WWF tag team titles. That's right, folks. 
Austin and Taker are tag team champions, but it only lasted for two weeks as Kane and Mankind regained the titles on the August 10th episode of Monday Night Raw, and then we saw Taker become the number one contender for the WWF Championship at SummerSlam, now held by his former tag team partner, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Shortly before SummerSlam, though, Taker revealed that he and Kane were working together as brothers, so they had been feuding at WrestleMania, now they're on the same page. And despite this revelation, though, Taker told Kane he did not want him to interfere in his match with Austin at SummerSlam, even though Taker did lose the match, he handed Austin the championship belt back to him as a show of respect, which I thought was kind of cool. And another fun fact of this one, Taker actually got knocked out, I'm sorry, uh, Austin got knocked out in this matchup. He uh, revealed in an interview that there was a match where, there's a moment where Taker was doing a run, and he went to kick him, and I think Taker, like, bumped his head up and hit Austin square in the chin and he got knocked the fuck out and he was like seeing stars and he said that uh, he looked up and he and Earl Hebner was the referee he's like where where am I and Earl Hebner's like you're in the garden kid which of course yeah, meant they were at just, Madison Square Garden they were looking straight up at the lights not knowing where you are <laughs> and, and this in the meantime is when you know the whole Austin Mr. McMahon angle was was really hitting its stride so Mr. McMahon had basically said, you know, that he was doing everything in his power to keep Austin from becoming champion. Right. You know, again, we saw him, you know, beat Shawn Michaels, obviously, at WrestleMania, but he was doing everything that he can to cause as much chaos for Stone Cold. Correct. So at this point, you know, obviously back at, at WrestleMania 14, Austin won the belt from Michaels. So now Mr. McMahon's trying to do everything to take the belt off Austin, including sending Taker and Kane. So yeah. a, as the storyline continued from SummerSlam uh, in September, Taker began to show some more heel characteristics when, of course, they re he revealed that he and Kane were both in cahoots with Vince McMahon. And at the next pay-per-view, which was Breakdown in Your House, Kane and Taker were booked in a triple threat match with Austin for the championship, but an interesting little twist, Vince said that the that Kane and Taker could not pin each other, which ultimately resulted in a very interesting finish, which I honestly thought was actually kind of clever. Taker and Kane both pinned Austin at the same time after a double choke slam, which means they couldn't tell who the champion was, so Vince is like, well, since I can't tell who it is, the championship is vacated which I thought was just a great, like, fuck you way to get the belt off Vince. Yeah. Or, sorry, get the belt off Austin, and Vince gets the win here, which I thought was very, very clever. So then we get into... Um, we see uh, we lead into a match at Judgment Day in your house with between uh, Taker and Kane for the title with Austin as the special guest referee. Near the end, though, Paul Bearer seemed to assist Kane by secretly handing him a steel chair to hit Taker with. But Kane had his back turned, so both Bearer and Taker hit Kane with the chair. Taker went for the pin, but Austin refused to count that attacked Taker, counted both of them out. Then finally, uh, so uh, just a fucking chaotic end to that matchup. Then yeah, real chaos. <laughs> Which I just I love it because it's just more for more fucking calamity. So finally, uh, Taker became uh, the villain the next night on Raw for the first time in over six years. So he's back to being a heel, reconciling with Paul Bear and claiming that he and Bear would unleash the Ministry of Darkness on the WWF. And as part of this new storyline, he admitted that he indeed did set the fire that killed. Uh, his parents, which, of course, he had blamed Kane for previously. So now, Taker was with Kane, doing this whole thing with Vince, got the belt off Austin, kind of did a little mini thing there, but now he's now turning back into a heel, changing up his gimmick once again, but now comes the birth 
of the Ministry of Darkness. This is my favorite iteration of The Undertaker. You know, when we had the ministry and even the corporate ministry I enjoyed. So much so that I even tried to sacrifice my sister when uh, <laughs> I was big into wrestling at that point in time. It's, it's my uh, my half-sister. My, my friend and I were big into wrestling and my parents were gone for the evening and they came home to see my half sister, you know, tied up with bed sheets and candles around her with the Undertaker theme playing. So we took wrestling to the extreme at, you know, 10 or 11 years old at that point. I think 11. That's they, hilarious. They, but, you know, this is, this is the same idiot me that used to play with wrestling action figures and I wanted them to come out with pyro. So I used sparklers and set my living room rug on fire. You know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, at least you use sparklers. I was using fucking, um, uh, what was it? Bic lighters and um, hairspray. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Now you really. Yeah, we use a little bit of axe later on, but yeah, I even had Go buried alive matches. Well, Goldberg's entrance didn't go so well for him. That's why he <laughs> lost an arm. So <laughs> that's, that's why his eyebrows never grew back. Yeah. Goldberg. So after Survivor Series, at this point, you know, he admitted, as you said, he would killed his parents with by setting that fire. So he's he's full villain and love how that just did it. Yeah, it's it just <laughs> that that's what, you know, like, hey, by the way, forgot to tell you, but the Undertaker returned his attention back to his previous feud with Austin since uh, he cost him the title at Judgment Day, and he hit Austin in the head with a shovel during a title match with The Rock. I don't know why I find this that really funny. This was a brutal spot, too. I mean, he hit him hard. I remember that. I don't know why I find oh. that really funny. I'm just going to hit you in the face with a shovel. Yeah, of all weapons. I mean, hey, if it works, it works, but. You know, so he returned the favor for what happened to him a month earlier. And with a twist in the storyline, McMahon scheduled a buried alive match between The Undertaker and Austin at rock bottom in your house. So leading up to the pay-per-view, The Undertaker attempted to embalm Austin alive. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Remember that? You know, yep. and, and oh, he, you know, had Austin basically unconscious, carried him to the back, strapped him to the table, whips out the ceremonial dagger as Paul Bearer is wearing like this apron, this splatter guard apron. Yeah. Looking yeah, like yeah. Something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, it, it was a hell of, hell of an angle. And then they tried to have Kane committed to a mental asylum as well that was that was interesting and then he had his druids chain austin to his undertaker symbol and raised him high into the arena so classic yeah so such a such a spectacle the undertaker however lost the match after kane interfered so right yet again not a great moment for the undertaker with a buried alive match buried alive in casket not really his forte we're seeing which is interesting because you'd think that would be his his uh his strength, but apparently it's his weakness. But yes, so after dirt is his kryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. What is my weakness but dirt? <sighs> so after this, of course, he um, uh, after building up to this another turn in the later part of '98, he introduced an updated version to his dead man identity by January, uh, the darkest, the dark priest, which is a lot of people synonymous with the Ministry of Darkness, like with like the hood and everything like that. Um, and became and especially a Satanist at this point in time. <laughs> when you try to embalm someone, I think you're pretty much there. Um, in this form, he took on a wicked demonic presence, much so more than ever before. He often claimed to be invoking and taking orders from a higher power. I can't. I have. I. I have a smile when I say that on my <laughs> I face. Smile as well. Yeah. As hearing you say it. Uh, moreover, he often appeared in a hooded black robe and sat on a throne, which was specifically designed into his character symbol. Which I'm. I'm not gonna lie. Fucking badass. I love so that. I love how when you see. 
when the explosions are on the background fucking amazing uh with the help so of this mini- and the music too this is this is one of my top themes for him i mean as much as the you know original dead man piano theme is fantastic you know the orchestral theme i love this one the rock guitar that they added and it was just so powerful and progressive and it really again fit with the times right he he continued to change and develop as needed which is another huge strength of his and it's something that we don't really mention much is that you know he he's adapted his character so well and and changed up at the right times that he still stayed fresh even though it's still like the raw core character of the undertaker it's still unique enough and a different enough change that's still very interesting. So with the new you know, Ministry of Darkness as he has, they often performed sacrifices on others, including like incantations and magic words with the intent to extract the out the dark side of the wrestler. So basically try to like recruit him like a cult, which I also I really thought was really cool. So at this point, the ministry consisted of the brood, which was Christian Edge and Gangrel, the Acolytes, Bradshaw and Farouk. So this is this is how the Acolytes kind of you know, the name came about was part of the, the ministry Midian uh, and viscera. <laughs> I say Midian because of obviously we know what happens. Um, interestingly enough though, uh, fanny pack. Uh, thank God for the fanny pack in some cases. Um, at this point in time, it was also very clever because he didn't wrestle. Taker didn't wrestle himself for a period because he did a hip replacement. So as part of the whole shtick, he was basically saying he wants to control the WWF, um, take over from Vince, and basically have the ministry one, which, again, I thought was a very, very clever uh, way of getting it around. So even though Taker's the leader, he's kind of like he's kind of like the final boss in like a video game. Like, you're not going to fight him until you get through all the minions first. And honestly, you know, with the exception of Midian, they had a hell of a fucking talent roster with Christian Edge, Gangrel, Farouk, Bradshaw, and Viscera. I mean, we joke a little bit, but that's not a bad group to have. Yeah, certainly not at all. It fits so well. And like you said, just, just a great way for him to stay relevant without having to be you know, succumbing to in-ring action while healing for his injury. So as he's healing, he's kind of letting his minions do his things. But of course, this ultimately uh, culminated to a rivalry between the ministry and the corporation, which would ultimately result in the infamous Hell in the Cell match between the Undertaker and the corporation enforcer, the Big Boss Man. And uh, <laughs> I, I laugh because. Now I'm laughing. Jesus Christ, the amount of shit that we've gone through. So we've gone through buried alive matches, chloroform, putting somebody in a cat, locking him in a casket, bury alive, setting it on inf- fire, inferno matches, throwing a guy off of a fucking 16 foot hell in the cell, nearly killing him. Convicted and now murderer. convicted murderer and now attempted live murder on pay-per-view. <laughs> I remember at this WrestleMania. Oh, my God. I So many people didn't care for this angle, cause, but I loved it as a kid. Like it was just. Of course you did. Lowering down, and I was all about it. I look back at it now, I realize it's silly, but my God, this was just so over the top. Jake, you just talked to me. reaction. You just just talked to me about how much you were enjoying sacrificing your half-sister, so of course you'd be happy at the idea of fucking big boss man being hung inside the ring. And especially because I had such a great disdain for Bossman's character. Even even in the early days, I'd never cared for him. And now he was this just ultimate dick. He really was. He just imbued this, this wise-cracking asshole. He was, oh, he was amazing heel. at it. So understated. You know, <sighs> it just overlooked so many times over. But my God, it, <laughs> him get the noose 
tied around his neck and then strung up from the cage and the cage raises up and there he is twitching and frightening so many people at home. And even at my young age, I'm like, Oh, obviously it's fake, you know, and he was back not long after. So they didn't really do much to sell it, but <laughs> thank God I thought it was a, 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 you know, very interesting, uh, uh, finish to a WrestleMania match. Yeah, that's a that's a nice neutral way of saying it. So anyway, next month we see Taker defeat Ken Shamrock from the corporation after Bradshaw interferes, but then comes the involvement of one Stephanie McMahon, which to my knowledge, this is the first time we're seeing her on TV as like a quote-unquote character. We've seen her obviously in like she's advertised and like posed for certain t-shirts for them for and had some backstage roles, but this is the first time we're actually seeing Stephanie on camera and of course yeah, the for for her being a personality Right, and so obviously the story goes that Taker, and most people know, kidnaps Stephanie McMahon, forcing Vince to, of course, enter into a, well, reluctant alliance with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Taker attempts to marry Stephanie before sacrificing her in a ceremony by with Paul Bearer, um, with her strapped to the cross, just like, or her symbol, uh, Taker symbol, just like... Um, just like uh, he did with Austin previously. As they try to go and sacrifice her, Austin comes in for the rescue, and this ultimately leads to their pay-per-view match uh, between Taker and Austin, where actually Taker would win his third WWF championship with help from Shane, the special referee, as it was revealed that Shane's corporate alliance had merged with the ministry to become the corporate ministry. Ooh, and when lot. Stephanie was getting sacrificed, I mean, first we had the teddy bear getting set on fire. Oh, yeah. And Vince that. being brought down to his knees. And then, of course, you know, when she's actually being tied to the symbol and Undertaker's there and Paul Bear's basically saying that she's going to be wed to the Undertaker and become his servant and his wife and his slave. And you saw different, you know, faces come out. We had the union. So it was Ken Shamrock and Mick Foley, Test, and the big show. And they couldn't get it done. And then the glass breaks and all hell breaks loose. And Austin saves, you know, Stephanie. And I remember Vince comes out and thanks her. And she hugs him so tightly with this warm embrace. And Austin didn't hug her back. You know, he, he just he just stood there. And, he, you know, Vince McMahon is thanking him repeatedly. And he said, I didn't do it for you. I did it because it was the right thing to do. Oh, such a great Austin moment right there. And the Undertaker on the outside, you know, visibly disheveled and angry. Like, it just just all of it combined was so fantastic. I do remember, like, you see, like, Vince, like, saying, like, thank you. And, all, it, it, like, kind of like, you know, like, thank you. Like, I know that you didn't do this for me. But, yeah, I, you're right. It was very emotional. It was very, um, it was very, it was good shit. It was, it was probably one of the <laughs> better things. It was, it was one of the better stuff they did. I mean, obviously, the reveal after. <laughs> 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 that only makes it i think because it was so emotional and you know it, it, it basically you know the, the the way they played with our emotions thinking that oh look you know mcmahon almost lost his daughter and you know it, it, it did it played with our emotions so well it got us to overlook and anticipate a lot of clues that were there so so of course out comes the reveal of the higher power which later well, is revealed. actually the week before Stone Cold gets to see who the higher power is. They tie him up in the ropes. A lot of people tend to forget that, but oh, shit, they're, right. you know, they, they tie up Austin in the ropes in the ring and the higher power walks out and lifts up his hood just enough for Austin to see who it is. You see Austin screaming, foaming at the mouth. He's so angry, kicking his feet. 
and then Raw goes off the air. So next week we find out that we're going to learn with the corporate ministry who the higher power is. And lo and behold, Connor, it's who? It's me, Austin. It was me. All along, Austin. It's the, none the other XFL. Than Vincent Kennedy <laughs> McMahon. You Which know? I'm not... I'm not mad that he was the higher power. I think that makes all the sense in the world, but I, I do love at, I think this is the first time I was ever exposed to the, the, uh, the concept of trolling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, it's one of those controversial moments where a lot of people look back and they snicker and I, I just, I enjoyed it. To me, it made sense. You know, as silly as it was, a lot of people thought it was going to be Jake the Snake and a few others. And I, I just, I was all about it. It worked. He would do anything, anything at all, Vince would, to screw over Austin, even if it meant destroying his own family. And this also led into the time, you know, Test was trying to save Stephanie. So their relationship is budding and developing. Right. It's going to turn into and eventually be the, the seed that plants for Stephanie turning on, you know, and turning heel and Triple H. Yeah, and her so turning it's... on Vince. And, and now Linda McMahon's on TV as well. She she puts Austin in a position of power eventually. Right. You know, it, it leads to a bunch of other things. So that's why I enjoyed it so much. But, I mean, realistically, it, it, it <laughs> you know, is still a bit of a shocker. And still made fun of to this day. <laughs> rightfully so but so after this we see a couple things from taker involving the ministry of darkness not too much though we see him ultimately drop the championship back to austin at king of the ring and then additional loss to him in a first blood match at fully loaded right after after that it kind of things kind of dissolved his relationship with the mcmahon's dissolved and then the corporate ministry disbanded not too long afterwards and then remember how we said that taker and austin were former tag team champions then Taker gets into a tag team with another a young upstart, a guy who had just been signed um, at this point. Let's see, we're talking like in the we're talking fall of 1999. So this guy hadn't been around for a full year yet in the WWF. He, yeah, he with the, debuted at uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre that February of that year. So right before WrestleMania 50. Yep. So Undertaker yeah. teams with the Big Show. Now, yeah, that's an interesting he team. Debuted in the uh, steel cage match between Austin and McMahon. Right, known as the Unholy Alliance. They actually held the titles twice, the WWF World Tag Team titles. Um, they had a victory at SummerSlam, uh, but then after their victory, unfortunately, Taker suffered a groin tear. Man, this guy does not get a break. Um, and was seen limping around a couple of matches. So he avoided competing in matches in the following weeks, but instead kind of like ordering the big show to do all his battles. So again, a nice way of kind of covering up an injury or kind of like compensating so much like we said with the ministry with him being like the the leader in the background having his minions do the work same idea but he's actually getting big show more exposure which at the same time is also very smart because big show is still very fucking green at this point even though he had such a run in wcw previously he's still green as goose shit in wwf so the parent would yeah. take her smart move and you got this really weird promo as well it was kind of like a shoot promo and and it still stands out in my mind where he said that he took big show out to the desert and, you know, left him there to see if he could succeed. And, you know, he came back wearing snake boots with his bike over his shoulder and, you know, all these different things, but they worked well as a pair together. And, you know, the whole trial by fire angle of it, of him trying to have Taker fight his battles for him to, you know, sink or swim worked well with the dichotomy that they had between the two. So, and then this point gets kind of very weird slash interesting. So 
at this point in time, now we're getting into, uh, I guess, uh, right before his change into his another into his next biker into the biker gimmick, the American Badass. Um, We see, I guess, in an interview with Kevin Nash, they mentioned that there was at this point in time, it was very, very close that Taker might have jumped to WCW. Um, And so the idea was that, I guess, he was trying to transition away from the Undertaker dark gothic gimmick to get to the biker character so that he could make the jump over because WF kind of had the trademark and reservation and and, uh, trademarks on that kind of, you know, persona of the Undertaker. Um, and even though negotiations were described as being close, Taker ultimately did re-sign with the WWF at the end of 1999. Now, another weird part of this is that apparently to compensate for him not being able to perform, because again, he still has that torn groin, he ended up doing like, you know, promos, commentary, and being kind of like, you know, smart alecky, so he's not performing in the ring. In September of 99 on SmackDown, Vince actually threatened that he would remove Taker from the next pay-per-view main event at Unforgiven if he refused to participate in a casket match against Triple H. And given the track record with casket matches, I don't fucking blame him. Uh, Taker retorted that he did not care and that maybe he would not be participating in anything and then he walked out of the WWF, which I thought, I guess they were trying to give him a, you know, at this point in time, they're blurring more. So, you know, going back to when we were originally starting this whole Taker um, you know, profile and his deep delve into his career. It's interesting to see how his character up until this point had morphed from being this like cosmic undead person and just slowly becoming, in my opinion, more and more human. You got more of a realistic persona between him and, and between what he was when he started in 1990 up until now into 1999, where now he's being more like, uh, you know, as close to the American, because the American badass to me is the ultimate persona of him being a human being, as far as like the character goes. Now yeah, it's absolutely. like it's I mean, that, like, that was yeah. him out and out, right? And so now we're kind of teasing that idea where he's like, I don't think I'm going to be participating in anything and walking away. So it kind of made you wonder what the fuck was going to go down and how he was going to come back or what he was going to do, what the hell we were going to get. And I was the, genuinely worried that he wasn't going to return at one point. I mean, it was so odd the way he left, and it seemed legitimate. So. So at this point, what they were really doing, though, was that he was taking him off to 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 treat the groin injury. Um, he did make a one time appearance to come back. Uh, he teamed with Viscera against Kane, the Godfather in a house show. Um, but he was actually advertised to return at Armageddon at the end of 1999. He was actually, I guess, on the poster. But in the meantime, he also tore his pectoral muscles, so he had to push it out even further. And this would ultimately lead to his triumphant return in May of 2000 drastically changing his identity, abandoning the somber mortician-themed attires, his funeral music, uh, allusions to the supernatural, everything like that, came down full steam on a motorcycle, coming back as what we know as the American badass version of The Undertaker. And at this point is where we're going to end part one. And, And, you know, just to tease into it, I mean, realistically here, they had teased... Uh, you know, some weird return going into Judgment Day where he would return. You know, That's right. I do remember the promos and the stuff. Girls. It was yeah. kind of like a Freddy Krueger nightmare scenario where, you know, the one, two, you know, those, those, the young girls all in white. He's here. Yeah. So, and apparently if you could freeze frame some of those things, there was, there was clues to him returning in those vignettes, but 
they didn't allude to anything specifically. They were just very eerie in nature. So, which I did like, but we'll talk about this is a perfect cutoff. This is the part we're going to take a pause and end part one as Taker is about to come back as the American badass version. And Jesus, whew, that was a lot to cover. I know. I mean, seven of the ten top ten matches of all time for the Undertaker take place uh, for where episode two will be. But I'll cover. Just briefly, you know, uh, number 10 of all time was Mankind, obviously, at King of the Ring 98. Uh, Not so much of a wrestling match, but just for how amazing the stunts were in the match where, you know, we talked about Mankind getting thrown off the Hell in a Cell. And number nine, uh, you know, when he took on Bret Hart at SummerSlam 97. So, again, those are two recommendations for you. And then also one other would be uh, when he took on HBK at Bad Blood in your house, 97. That's when Kane debuted. So, you know, check out those three matches. Those are numbers 10, 9, and 4 of the top 10 Undertaker matches of all time. So uh, we're also looking for, you know, your favorite Undertaker moments and matches. You know, let us know. Go ahead and contact Connor or myself on Twitter, or you can always respond to the Patreon. And again, like you said before, if you want to get part two early, not just be involved in part two, but get it early. Make sure to subscribe to Connor's Patreon. It's patreon.com slash okfabe, where you get a bunch of awesome extra exclusive bonus content there. Really is worth your patronage. And uh, if you enjoy the content, you know, you'll love everything that he has to offer there. We did have a lot of people um, join Patreon in the last couple of weeks just for the show. So it just goes to show you how well of a job that you're doing, Jake, <laughs> and how, how well, <laughs> well you so know. Much. I, and, I look forward to this greatly. I mean, Undertaker uh, alone, obviously, is one of my favorites of all time. He is your favorite, as you said. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this, but the show in general is just so great to to you know go and have a real deep dive back into the history of wrestlers because, as we said before, there was quite a few times tonight where we said, oh, wow, I forgot about said moment or rivalry or match. Yeah, I know, and that's one of my favorite things. You know, obviously, me and Jake. You know, uh, not that Joe is not a fan, but whenever you hear us out of nowhere, we're kind of the super nerds when it comes to pro wrestling because we we just, um, I mean, especially for me, I don't watch much sports. I don't want to do anything else. This is this is my thing. So to really deep dive is is fun. Always love doing stuff with Jake, um, whether it's on out of nowhere or elsewhere. And so it's it's just really, you know, honest to God, no bullshit. This is one of my favorite things to do as far as like content I make. Raw, you know, the reviews and hanging out with you guys and whatnot on live on a basis, all that fun. But but as far as content, this is some of my favorite stuff to do, especially with Jaco. So with that being said, guys, we're gonna wrap up this episode of Wrestling Retrospective. This is episode number four, doing Undertaker Part One again. Like Jake said, part two coming at you next month, where we're gonna do the final part. The final chapter of The Undertaker. We're going to be chronologically going through his career from his return as the American Badass and Undertaker year 2000, going all the way up to 2018, which just made me remind myself that the last match we saw Taker in was fucking Crown Jewel. Yep. I can't believe we have to end on that note but anyway guys again love to hear your thoughts feedbacks comments suggestions on all this stuff hit us up in the comments here whether you're listening to us on Patreon whether you're listening to this on YouTube or on the audio platforms iTunes Podbean Stitch Radio Google Play or Spotify you guys can hit us up on all those different platforms love to hear feedback thoughts and suggestions things to read in the future and trust me we'll be reading some on the next episode of course you guys can reach out to Jake he is on Twitter at Countdown and it also has a YouTube channel of the same name go give 
give Jake some love over there. And of course, you can also reach out to me on Twitter at OKFabe. Check out my YouTube channel as well. And also check us out every Wednesday on Out of Nowhere with, of course, the lovely-eyed Joe Cronin. And uh, like I said, guys, next month, episode number five, part two of The Undertaker's Career. Uh, Jake, anything you want to say before I wrap this up? No, as always, thank you for having me and rest in peace. Imagine if he went to WCW and he couldn't trademark that. <laughs> couldn't say that. Uh, yeah, he's like, rest, rest in well. bees. Like, some some weird things. Like I know it's completely Sleep fucking random. well. <laughs> rest easy. Like, what the fuck? That, no, <laughs> it makes no sense. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate it. Take care. And as always, take it easy. <laughs>